Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo wishes to relieve itself from the duty of overseeing the legacy behind major milestones and wishes to cozy up to something filled with thrills and nothing much more. And what better way to do... So then with a group of lovely performers engaged in a thrilling and at many times witty film noir, just a grand old time with no major expectations abound. Open your mind freely to a gripping tale as you get caught in 1947's The Web. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. just seen a man killed. Every witness testified the shooting was in self-defense. But could it have been murder? I'm to blame for getting in a spot like that in the first place. Who am I to be carrying a gun, playing around with people's lives? I ought to have my head examined. The Web, starring Edmund O'Brien, who tamed the bad boys and the killers. Ella Raines, a penthouse woman with pent-up emotions. William Bendix, whipcracker of the Homicide Bureau. And Vincent Price, in the startling and exciting story of a man trying to prove himself guilty of murder. I want to work on this case with you. You seem to forget you're the one I'm after. No, D'Amico. I'm not the one you want. You pulled the trigger. It was your bullet that killed the guy. If it's murder, you did it. I admit I'm a little ashamed at what an easy target I was this afternoon. But primarily, I came here to find out just what you were up to tonight. What's your guess? Blackmail. What are you trying to do, Andrew? Everyone that's ever meant anything to you. Croner, Charles, and now me. Look, what do you want, the truth or a quick arrest? What's your story? This is a frame. You could frame more than any guy I ever met.
Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Yes, in 1947, the web premiered as one of the many ventures being outputted by the new Universal International Company in an attempt to move away from their known output of B-movies and Abbott and Costello. But the web itself found itself critically liked, but moderately attended. Regardless of either Laurel being less than remarkable, the web proves to be a grand entry in the film noir genre that features some wonderful performances from actors that may or may not catch your attention nowadays. But what, uh, in addition to that, does the web have to offer to the world of filmmaking and film history in general? Well, I can't answer that alone because I'm tired. I'm tired of lifting up the burden of Citizen Kane on my goddamn shoulders. So with us today are two podcasters who are well known for their love of Golden Age Hollywood, uh, horror films, and all things Hercule Poirot. But today they will be asked a very simple question. Is this William Bendix's best performance? Please welcome to the show Smokey and Adam Roach. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Now, Smokey, you've been on the show. Uh, you, as we all know, you're a noted podcaster from such su such uh, wonderful ventures as Rated H. Uh, you are, also do the House of Hammer. Uh, but your your co-host here, I had a hard time looking up uh, his um, resume. Uh, so I, 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 I've got it all listed here. And just like, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, okay. uh, the um, uh, Forgotten Tales of Tinseltown. Uh, yep. Go get him, Charlie. Uh, mm -hmm. And my favorite one, uh, The Many Endeavors of Kenneth Branagh. Uh, did I get that right, mm -hmm. Mr. Roach? Oh, yeah. Well, Frankie would definitely agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> Best Poirot ever. She's going to love you, too. No, no. He's so good. His emotive range, yeah. the moustache, it's just never been bettered by uh, Mr. Branagh. You know what I awesome. love? When Hercule Poirot farts. I really love that in Murder on the Orient Express. I love a good fart joke. Love a good poop joke. Who doesn't? I, I, oh, no. It's great. It's great. Don't get me wrong. That's why I love that dog farting in Sherlock Holmes uh, 1 with, by Guy Ritchie. Um, no, um, Adam, wow. you, um, you, you are, you are more, more than talked about on this show because you are a grand influence. So you can hide behind your fort pillow of embarrassment. Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, you do Attaboy Clarence, uh -huh. Secret History of Hollywood, and The Labors of Hercule. Um, and, and you ushered it. And, yes. and can I just quickly and, say, and, I always do all the best yes. ones. But, and I also do In and Out Burgers now, thanks to you. because what uh, oh, yeah. That's right. Mm. Yeah. Like a little inside. A little insider story, not insider, whatever. Um, uh, Adam was going out to Hollywood and he. Uh, he messaged me going like, are you near Hollywood? And I'm like, well, Colorado's not exactly near Hollywood. You're joined by land. <laughs> That's the main yes, thing. We're, yeah. Yes, yes. theoretically, I could have walked. And if I had started Americans. walking from the moment you texted me mm -hmm. to the moment that I needed to be there. You'd be about yes. halfway now. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah, halfway there, yes. <laughs> I would have walked 500 miles back the way I came. I got done. Um, uh, but no, I got to meet up with you in person. Yeah. It was lovely. It was fantastic. Was so next is I've got to meet Smokey in Canada somehow. That would be lovely. Yeah, yeah, we'll uh, get some Tim Hortons. It'll be fun, buddy. <laughs> again, Absolutely. again, it's, um, yeah. it's walkable for you, Zach. And yes. may I just say as well, yeah, how yeah, come yeah. we're making all the effort? 
I was I was questioning that myself. I was like, hang on, how am I suddenly having to move to Canada? The queen, uh, the, one of the queen's last words was, "Don't let him in." <laughs> so, no, well, yeah. That, that's yeah, but we've got a king now. She, it's a whole new, whole new ball wax. Does she mean the king, or does she see a picture of Trump before? She was talking about all three of us. Um, no, I think so. But um, yes, you brought it up, Adam. All the best lines. Yeah. It's a show that you both do. It's a show that I love and cannot get enough of. Oh, and I can't think of a better way to talk about a movie like The Web than with you guys in the room because oh. All the Best Lines doesn't just do classics. It also does things you guys are in the mood for, whether it's Smokey <laughs> selections or Adam selections. Yes, <laughs> oh, yeah. yes, they, yes, we do, unfortunately. Uh, I mean, I, I, every, <laughs> everybody remembers the wonderful classic portrait of Jenny. Um, mm. So, um, yeah, wonderful film. But um, <laughs> also coming up in your arsenal, um, by the time this comes out, it'll already have re- been released. But you're doing the suspect with Ella Rains, yeah, um, yep. and uh, Charles Lawton. Um, mm. Now, and I and I'm glad that we're doing another Ella Rains piece together because it's fresh in in both of your guys's um, memories. Mm-hmm. But the web came to me because of Adam's show, Attaboy Clarence. Yeah. Um, and I have a question for you, Adam, since you are technically new to the Ballyhoo, which mm. will uh, clarify. I'm a, Bally New. Yeah, Bally New. B- badoo. Nice. <laughs> um, yes, you're Bally New to the Ballyhoo. Mm-hmm. Badoo, badoo. Um, <laughs> I, we, we've, we've talked about Secret History of Hollywood before in regards to Hitchcock when you came on for Shamley. Yeah. But I want to talk about Attaboy Clarence for a second because Attaboy is a show that goes into the cracks of Hollywood um, and uh, and doesn't always focus on a classic. It will sometimes go into the B genre, um, of whether it's noir, um, comedy, um, drama, and occasionally, as you've done recently, Western. Um, what is it about the B movie that you find so appealing? Because you you have such a love for it that I, I, I genuinely admire, but what is it about it that attracts itself to you, like these B movies, whether they're noir, gangster, whatever they might be. Oh, sometimes I think films are far more fun if they're if you strip the gloss away and take the varnish off them. I like films that are short. I like stories that get to the point. I think that's just a sensibility that I, 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 mm-hmm. I like across the, all the films I like to watch. Um, and I think it's such a treasure box when you start digging into the second tier, you know, that sort of, um, <laughs> the, all of those supporting players. And it's wonderful when you see like an A-lister who ends up in a B movie, and you go, "Wow, look, it's John Barrymore in a bulldog drama movie." <laughs> it like gives it a bit of a of an edge. You don't get that in A-list movies because you know everyone's supposed to be, you know, a god or a goddess. I just like efficient storytelling. I like something that's a bit pulpy. I was going to say mm-hmm. actually, there's a, a guy in the web, John Abbott. He plays Charles Vincent Price's mm-hmm. um, like sidekick man. He is in a film called London Blackout Murders. And I think it's about 52 minutes long. And it's one of the best B-movies I've seen in in like the past year. I just racked that one up and I put it on and it was it looks like it's going to be like a serial killer thriller. Uh, but the story mm-hmm. goes to some really unusual places. And I remember thinking, wow, that's, oh, that's one of my favorite movies now. And it's like a 52-minute nothing film that would have been forgotten. I think, you know, the big names, as I've said before, Gone with the Wind and Casablanca, they... They get enough love, you know. It's time to it's time to elevate the dross, which is why me and Smokey like talking about films like The Devil Doll, Brighton Strangler. Oh yeah, yes, 
Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I slided you with Portrait of Jenny, but no, the Devil Doll is, I would I would argue that's all the best lines claim to fame. It's Devil the Doll. Devil Doll. It, that is, a, oh, that is a film that I walked in with. No, I, I heard your episode, then I cleared my brain a little bit and went like, all right, go in with no expectations. Mm. And I walked out feeling just about as excited about it as you guys were. It's yeah. it's a film that should not work. Yeah. The way it's constructed. It's exhilarating. Wonderful. It's wonderful. <laughs> exactly. Mm. Um, that's how yeah, I felt yeah. about the web. That's yeah. how I felt about the web. Because I heard your episode first while going into work. And then I immediately popped it on the moment I could. And mm. I am a, um, I, I've, I've, I've been this admitted fan of William Bendix in Film Club. Not because of his noir films, but because he was an old-time radio comedy star in a sitcom called The Life of Riley. And it's one of the first radio shows that my dad ever had me listen to. When I got this big, like, Radio Spirit set, we played it in the car on the way to um, my grandparents' house, my the same grandparent who got me into it in the first place. So he played Life of Riley, and that that Manhattan lug uh, and his beautiful voice <laughs> um, just made me laugh as a kid. So seeing him in noirs years later was quite a shock. Mm. Um, and then to find out he was an Oscar nominee and all of this uh, wonderful stuff, it's nice to watch him in a role like this. And obviously as Smokey will love and adore, Vincent Price is in this movie. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> playing something that he is not known for. There's a lot of like people doing things they're not expected to do in this film. Mm. Um, but um, the the other addition also is Edmund O'Brien, who hasn't been fully discussed on this show, but he's another Mercury, he's another Mercury player under Orson Welles, who ends up finding his own niche. And it's funny, I was looking at everybody's filmography for this film, uh, the four key players. Edmund O'Brien technically has the latest credit to date because he was in The Other Side of the Wind by Orson Welles, <laughs> which, got re which finally got released in 2018. But everybody here seemed to have a career that stretched as far as it can go, except for Bendix, because Bendix unfortunately passed away too soon. Um, so... I want to talk a little bit about the production of the film as we do on the show, but I wanted to ask Smokey here, did you, was this the first time watching the film for you? And if so, what was your like general reaction to it? No, this was, uh, this was a second time view for me. I'd seen it once before. I'm guessing, uh, one of, uh, of Adam's film club nights, um, because that's normally where I get my, my weekly dose of, uh, golden age cinema. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but I will be completely honest, when I put it on, I had got it completely confused with a different film in my head. Um, I'm still not sure what that film was, but uh, I had it, uh, yeah, completely wrong. Um, but it was lovely to revisit it, though. I mean, it's it's got a great cast, and it, as we said, we've just done um, The Suspect, so great to be back with Ella Rains again. Mm -hmm. And then I'm, you know forgive the the language but i'm a whore for anything with vincent price in to be perfectly <laughs> honest this is this is my third vincent price film in a week so um you can't get I'm, enough uh, from me can you <laughs> i really can't no um uh no i have I, a actually, painting no, of you on my wall <laughs> but uh, <laughs> oh, now you're talking but i I, something has occurred to me though over this last over this last week of uh, of watching these films is that Regardless of whether Vincent is a good guy or a bad guy, I want him to win, which really isn't the point. 
because <laughs> he's bloody horrible in the web. <laughs> and I, I, I still wanted him to succeed at the end. It's, it's one of the most interesting Vincent Price performances I think I've seen. Oh, and so I'm not, good. and I've by by no means have I watched everything the man's done. The man's credit list is like is about as wide as as the apartment here. But like I, I, I genuinely love certain moments in here where he is just laying on the story, the alibi or the, like his version of events. And it's just like, it doesn't sound forced. It sounds very natural out of him. And yet, you know, he's sinister. So he's like, he's playing CD in a different way. I'm used to him as a horror icon. So watching him do it in a different yeah. way is a lot but of fun. It, like the other night I watched shock for the first time. And in that granted, he's not the full on proper antagonist. He's sort of a secondary one, but, in it, he's, you know, legitimately on purpose giving a woman PTSD mm-hmm. so he can get away with a crime. And I still wanted him to win. <laughs> and I'm like, there's some, there's something really wrong here. But mm-hmm. it is just my enduring love for, for Vinnie P. I, I, can't, I really can't get enough of him. Well, perhaps that's, you know, why he's been one of those names that stuck around so long. Because people, he is one of those villains that is incredibly appealing, no matter what role he plays mm, even in things so like charming yeah have you seen the bribe where he plays like this oily uh set in sort of south america it's got charles lawton in it again um uh, Av- ava gardner and it's set in like this um sort of south american town and he he begins by being an ally and turns out at the end that he's the arch villain and still at the end you're like well i kind of hope he still wins and kills the hero and, and, and laura as well i mean he's not even the villain in laura, laura yeah, great but um you kind of you can understand why judith anderson wants him and gene tierney wants him mm. and then you like, skip mm-hmm. forward to theater of blood you are praying he's going to do something even more <laughs> gross and gruesome to his next victim oh, every, yeah. with every death yeah, what a man. Yeah, that's why I was disappointed uh, at first with uh, uh, the abominable Doctor Fives because obviously he's he's in a mask for the majority of the film. And you never hear him. We speak, don't want that, like, do we? Oh. Have you seen um, The Invisible Man Returns as well? He's invisible for the whole thing, and you still want. Yeah, you still yeah. want. You still like. I still want him to win. <laughs> <laughs> What's that mysterious voice out there? I don't know who you are, but I hope you win all the prizes. <laughs> and what a tease! Well, at the end of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. They get into the boat oh, and yeah. sail that- away. And he says, I'm the Invisible Man. Yeah. And you're like, yes, great. Give me another hour of this. And it says the end. And you're like, no, damn it. <laughs> the end, yeah. Or you, or you just hear his voice for about five seconds and then it stops. At the same time, though, <laughs> he did win. He got him out of the boat. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> he did win. <laughs> he, got them, he got them to do one more funny thing. He won. <laughs> like, which I'm- I mean, may, may, maybe it's to do with his sort of his latter career. You know, the sort of the the chat show appearances and the cookbooks and the going on the Muppets and things like that. I think it's just it proved what a, a lovely human being he was. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that obviously we're looking backwards uh, at his career and so you know when you when you know he, what kind of guy he is then you're sort of seeing doing all these horrible acts it's sort of like no oh, i can forgive him mm. it's fine he let Ker- he let kermit bite him on the neck he's fine <laughs> <laughs> he can't of, be all that bad talking of the cookbooks yeah. um i do i should probably tell you that um kev our good friend kev is coming on to Asboy Lawrence in the next week or two. <laughs> and we've been set a challenge. We set each other a challenge. We're both going to do a Vincent Price recipe 
and we're both <laughs> oh fuck we're both, we're both, we're both going to report back on Atwood Clarence live on our results complete with pictures to follow on social media Brilliant. some of those things some of the recipes are fantastic a great big like, tuna made of tuna and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be like I'm going to be like I'm going to be listening right next to the kitchen just to see what I can do with that I'll be listening next to the toilet that's <laughs> what <laughs> <laughs> I'm go I'm 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 trying to optimize I'm trying to be optimistic here. <laughs> but uh it's so actually funny because I just confirmed this. Um he's gonna be doing another Vincent Price thing in about four days because he yeah. I and uh Shameful Steve, Steve, Steve Noble, or Awesome yeah. Steve. Yeah, we're gonna do ha- House on Haunted Hill. So um, oh, wonderful. as as promised from last year, we're gonna get that we're gonna get those two into that house. Um but um <laughs> but back to the web though. I want to jump in here on the production because there is a couple of interesting things about this production. First of all, the director of this film is a guy who immersed himself in B movies at the beginning of his career, uh, a Mr. Michael Gordon, um, who <laughs> is apparently related to the one and only Joseph Gordon-Levitt. <laughs> um, really? Um, yeah, uh, is uh, his grand is apparently his grandson. Um, because uh, uh, his daughter, his daughter Jane, uh, had a little boy named Joseph Gordon Levitt, who, as we all know, went on to be uh, Jimmy and H two O and nothing else. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's the only thing he's done. Um, but Mike Michael Gordon, I found this interesting because like the Variety articles surrounding this seem to list him as a first time director for the web. Um, no. uh, I have here, I have here from, uh, from Variety that on October 15th, 1946, Michael Gordon, Broadway stage director, signed director contract yesterday with Universal International, checks in on the lot immediately for his first picture, Black Velvet, um, Gordon, formerly with Columbia for two years as a dialogue director, had a string of 10 Broadway hits to his credit among them, Laura and Home of the Brave. Now... The dialogue director is it would be a nice credit, but he directed things like Boston Blackie Goes Hollywood, mm-hmm. Underground Agent, and something I'm pretty sure Adam's familiar with, Crime Doctor. Crime Doctor series is really fun, actually. Yeah, they're great. So, so he he had director credits, and I've looked at the poster. They're crediting him not as dialogue director. Mm. He's director. No, he's a director. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this is an instance where Variety is just kind of like pulling something uh, well, out of them, out of themselves as well. There was um, no internet in those days. They're probably like, "Shall we just announce this to be his first film?" Because no one's going to go up and check, are they? So we'll just say you're a first-time director. <laughs> Let's wipe the slate clean. You don't have to have the crime doctor and Boston Blackie hanging off your ass. Do, do you think there's going to be something like I don't know something with wires and tubes and uh, screens that'll be able to disprove this years later? Nah, Chuck, don't be silly. That's fucking stupid. Yeah, that's, that's that's just a pipe dream. Nah, now nah. what do you what, what do you think you would call it? Oh, I don't know, the web. Oh, <laughs> oh shit. There's irony. Now, you want even greater irony. The same day that this is announced for Michael Gordon signing with Universal International, uh, from St. Louis, Vincent Price is bereaved. My mother, Marguerite Wilcox Price, passed away uh, the the day before. So he's already in bereavement. But don't worry, Michael Gordon's going to lift him up with a noir where he has to play a piece of crap. (laughs) 
So a piece of crap that we want to win. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so like Mr. Hankey. Yeah, Mr. Hankey. <laughs> <laughs> do I really have to do this trade, Matt? Ah, oh, shit. All right, Mr. Hankey, the Christmas poo. He loves me. I love you. <laughs> um, now, about a month later. Price does sign for the role, um, uh, uh, and this is what gets interesting. The movie then suddenly changes to Jeopardy around February, and apparently it had to do with the mis- uh, with mistaking it for a racehorse, and race ra- race uh, racehorse uh, people were uh, apparently applying to be a part of this film when it had nothing to do with racehorses. Wow. <laughs> so. I don't know That's what the... Random. Yeah, I know. Hey, Ballyhoo listeners. I wanted to go ahead and clarify the racehorse story that I was referring to. Uh, once again, this is from Variety, so take it with a grain of salt. But in lieu of uh, a lot of production facts about the web not being fully available, I was trying to see what I could find. And this was an interesting kind of story to at least tell anecdotally. Um, once again... Uh, We're talking about The Web from 1947, right? Well, this film went through title changes. So on Tuesday, January 28th, 1947, Variety reported that Universal International signs Vincent Price for Black Velvet role. This is for a film called Black Velvet, starring Ella Raines and Edmund O'Brien. Okay, now, cut to February... Uh, This comes from February 20th, 1947, from a little section in Variety called On the Soundtrack. Uh, The little blurb here states, So many horse owners called producer Jerry Bressler, offering to rent their racing stock for the picture Black Velvet, that the film has been retitled Jeopardy. It isn't a horse picture, even if all the horse players in town seem to think so. Bressler said this. Well, that title Jeopardy... The article goes on to state, is likely to get a rise from a lot of race bettors, too. So there you go. That's the little racehorse story. Maybe not worth this little interruption, but I wanted to clarify it because it was something that I looked up in research and I wanted to make sure I could share it with y'all. So uh, here we go. Back to the program where we're talking about the web, previously known as Jeopardy, previously known as Black Velvet. Enjoy. The only reason you can tell that they immediately change it to Jeopardy is one of two things. Number one, uh, William Bendix um, uh, is confirmed in the cast on February 17th of 1947. Um, I want to talk about William Bendix uh, for a little bit because I don't think outside of this group, I don't think people remember him as well as other character actors even. Um, Mm. But this gentleman had an interesting, uh, like, eclectic career. He's born in Manhattan in in, uh, January 14th, 1906. He's the nephew of violinist Max Bendix. Uh, Max Bendix was the first concert master for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra from 1891 until 1896. So he has some performance pedigree around him. Um, He... Uh, he had early career goings on as a bat boy at the polo grounds, which for a time housed the New York Yankees and the New York Giants. The Giants were the landlord in this situation. And when the Yankees got into a fight with the Giants, the Yankees said, fuck you, we'll build our own stadium. And thus that job went kapuli for him. Um, and his acting bug truly begins with his involvement with the Henry Street settlement on the Lower East Side as part of the Henry Street Players. 
Uh, eventually, he works his way into the Federal Theater Project in New Jersey. And while he's performing there, he catches the attention of Cheryl Crawford, who puts him in several theater guild productions, including Policeman Krupp in The Time of Your Life. That role lasted two years for him. Uh, and it is the role that gets him signed by the one and only Hal Roach. Um, and one of his, I think it's his obituary, got it wrong. Um, because first of all, he's actually uncredited in the movie They Drive by Night. But second of all, um, uh, the NY, the, the New York Times obit got his first role wrong. They claim it's Woman of the Year as a tavern keeper, but he's actually in a streamliner for Hal Roach called Brooklyn Orchid. Um, and these, and this apparently was, I've never heard of this until researching this episode, but apparently it was the difference between a short subject and a feature film. It was just like literally hitting about the 50 minute mark. Um, so, and that is available on YouTube for people who want to check out William Bendix, Bendix's first role. Um, and then his film career would just go into a wide range of, uh, anything from comedy to drama. He's in Abbott and Costello's Who Done It. He's in Two Mugs from Brooklyn, Taxi Mister. Uh, he gets an Oscar nomination for Wake Island for Best Supporting Actor early on in his career. And he is in noir films like The Glass Key, Calcutta, The Blue Dahlia, and The Dark Corner. Um, but he would become a, a millionaire or a bajillionaire by today's standards, I guess, uh, when he took on the role of Chester A. Riley in an Irving Brecker-plotted um, uh, show called The Life of Riley, lasted on radio from 1944 until 1951, would find later life on television, and had its own movie in 1949. Um, so this is one of those guys that just worked, 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 and was able to do anything. Like, And he didn't pigeon, pigeonhole himself in comedy, which is something that I, like, I'm always fascinated by. It's like Curtiz is able to move from comedy to drama to action film, whatever he wants to do. Bendix is that that version of an actor. He can do literally whatever is put in front of him. I think he should have got an Oscar for Lifeboat, if I'm being honest. Because um, yes, he, his his role in that is insane. I mean, he has to play, you know, washed up sailor who has to drink himself into oblivion so he can have his leg amputated, and then he sort of loses his mind, and then he's trying. Oh my god! And we watched that film club, I think, about a month or mm -hmm. two back, and. I mean, it's not, don't get me wrong, it's not my favorite Hitchcock film. But, <clears throat> um, and, and I was kind of like, oh, that's weird that everyone's picked this one. But five minutes in, everyone was glued. And when it finished, they were all like, wow. It's like, could he do no wrong, Alfred Hitchcock? But William Bendix in particular, I think, really got to everyone. I think everyone was very, very affected by his fate, shall we say, without spoiling it. But as you mentioned, Dark I Corner as well. He To go from playing that kind of character, then going to the dark corner where he plays this schlubby, kind of ineffective heavy who's sent after um, the main character and is thwarted, you know, and embarrassed all the time. Um, he, he really was very, very versatile. I mean, mainly he mm -hmm. played these thugs who are either thuggish heavies or thuggish cops. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's obviously because of his build. But then you have things like Duffy's Tavern and where he popped up in that movie, and as you say, Life of Riley on radio. To, and for a 24-year career as well, he was only, you know, he died in 64, so it was kind of brief. Yeah. He didn't last as long as someone like Sheldon Leonard, who was doing the same kind of thing. Yeah, um, he was, yeah, well, he also, Leonard found a way to branch out into 
television production. Yeah, it's well. behind yeah. the scenes. But he burned brightly. Was my point is that you know he he sort of gave it everything. He tried everything. He did everything. He conquered everything. Even you know radio, mm-hmm. film, everything, comedy, drama, thriller, and conquered it all. And then said, "Thank you very much. Good night." So yeah, one of those actors who really is should be more appreciated i think definitely these days i agree and people like it's funny i was listening to some life of riley and listening to chester a riley um today you can't draw a direct parallel or connective tissue to this because it would it wouldn't it wouldn't uh hold water but there are things in that show that chester a riley does that homer simpson does yeah. like <laughs> point for point so it's yeah. like you can't say that homer simpson's inspired by chester a riley but there's a lot of precedent for what Homer Simpson could become and you can find it in there. Mm. And like, it, like almost to a T like selling out his own son at certain points, <laughs> um, like, like r- barging in on the boss and claiming to like have a dummy that works for him while he sneaks out and has a cigarette, like stuff like that. I'm just like, this is literally a Simpsons plot right now. <laughs> um, now. And I, and additionally, you're right. Like lifeboat, I love him in that, partially because I'm not a fan of Tulula Bankhead in that movie. Um, she's fun, but she's not the thing I'm interested in. I'm kind of interested in literally everybody else in the movie. Mm-hmm. He's one of them. Um, but also the, the 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 moral complexity by the time you get to the third act of Lifeboat is just like... It, it was something that apparently like everybody like I think you've talked about. You talked about this in the, the Hitchcock series, but like there was pushback against that. Um, that 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 ending because of how ambiguous it was and how like it was, it was humanizing. It was the too. It was time. too. Yeah. It was too. It was too flag wavy. And I, I think I'm right in saying that you know that you weren't allowed to. Yeah, you weren't allowed to show them as anything but evil. And that boy who's right. dragged into the boat at the end could be either. We don't know, do we? Mm-hmm. But you know, they're like you know, you no. should have should have slit his throat and thrown him back into the sea. Basically, that's how that's <laughs> the kind of ending they were hoping for. But instead, they choose to be humane, which in, in you know, in the wake of the war, looks far more positive. If if they you know, yeah. so so obviously they made the right choice. I was going to say actually, um, while I do think Lifeboat is his best active performance, I do think him in the web is my favourite William Bendix performance. Spokey, Thank you. I, I, you know, you've just recently revisited it. I'm really interested to know, because I think this role for him, William Bendix in the web, he's so bloody fantastic in this. Everyone else, I think, mm-hmm. is slightly stilted. Not not, not in a bad way. I think, you know, Evan O'Brien is your arc, you know, cardboard cut out, he's your man that you're following through. Mm-hmm. He's complicated, but he's not as appealing as William Bendix, who seems to radiate warmth also authority. I mean, you're, I, I would say, probably newer to the film. What mm-hmm. do you think? <laughs> I love him. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually quite relieved you said that. Because I think, I think uh, Edmund O'Brien actually suffers uh, in, in the web from both uh, Bendix and Vincent Price. Um, because I knew I recognised William Bendix. I did have to look him up. Um, because I didn't, I wasn't there for that screening of uh, of Lifeboat, but I I have seen it, and he's wonderful in that. And obviously, he's very recognisable. You know, as you say, he's a big guy, um, very, what's the word? Distinct features, shall mm-hmm. we say? Yes, especially with one certain part of his of his uh, of his face, and um, 
and so I, I knew I recognised him. I'd also seen him in the glass key as well. So it was it was nice to see him again. And he's great in this. He's absolutely fantastic. That voice he's mm. got, it's a it's such an enigmatic voice mm-hmm. that it, you can't fail to notice him when he's on screen, but his size and his voice is wonderful. But I, I was watching the web and thinking, damn, Edmund O'Brien's really stiff. Mm-hmm. And and I think that actually hinders his performance. Actually, and I don't know he's a great actor. I've seen him in several things. I know he was Oscar. He was an Oscar winner as well, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. And yeah, and so but so you have this square, if you will. You've got a square, and each corner you've got you've got Ben Dix, you've got Vincent Price, and then you've got Ella Rains, and it's like, oh, that's an awesome triangle. And then right at the bottom of the square, you've got Evan O'Brien, and and, and sadly, I think he he comes away. The, the worst out of the four. Don't get me wrong, it's not a terrible performance, it's just very stiff and stilted. The problem with Eben O'Brien is that he plays the same character in every film. He literally, yeah. he plays himself, he turns up, he always looks like, oh, I'm saying this line like I can be, but I'm saying this line, God damn it, i got to say this line yeah. now. That's <laughs> Eben O'Brien is, does this yeah. in every movie, does it in White Heat, does it in you know, this, he does it in mm. everything, he plays the same character. Yeah. So unfortunately, in this, yeah. he is acted off the screen by the three right he's and it's and it's funny because like there is like so there was something that i found interesting as i was like i picked up the blu-ray of this for this episode but i've been i've been a fan of this film since the november when you put that attaboy out and i declared it my favorite bendix performance in letterbox because i'm like uh this is this is what i wanted him to do all the time Mm. i like him as a as a as a lug like in Glass Key, but I want this out of him more often. That, that was going to just be my, my end point was literally I was going to agree with both of you, yeah. which is when I, I really enjoyed him in the Glass Key. And as you say, his, his performance in Lifeboat is wonderful because of because of what he has to do. Yeah. But I'm, I'm agreeing with you too. I think this is, the, this is the best performance I've seen him give. And I think it's wonderful, especially the ending. That, mm. uh, or, you know, yeah. I don't yeah. know if we want to spoil no, no, it or yeah. not, but that, that last 10 minutes or so. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Yeah. I was, that last 10 minutes or so, he's, he's electric. Yeah, I was, he's, yeah. he's, he's so much better than Ebon O'Brien. I was going to say really quickly, though, the in the in there's a lovely cr- commentary on the Kino Lorber. If you guys pick it up, there is a um, there's a trajectory for Edmund O'Brien. And at this point, he's actually being voted on um, the top lists of a lot of uh, – favorite male leads by women's magazines and so he's getting yeah so he's getting these top roles and there i don't think he's necessary i don't know i don't know if he's necessarily deciding it or if the studio's deciding it but it's fitting the mold of what they're probably voting him for in that Mm. top spot if he's playing that gung-ho hero who just wants $68.72 for a push cart full of bananas that has been knocked over carelessly by fucking Andrew Colby. <laughs> Do you know what? The thing is, the thing is with Edmund O'Brien, I had a bit of a phase with him last year. I think I watched like one of his movies every day for like a month or something. And I really sort of, there, there are films like The Bigamist where he is just amazing in that. You know, he, he in, incredibly, he's a bigamist you feel sorry for and who, who finds himself in this situation where he's married to multiple women, and you can understand how it happened. That's the genius of the film, because it's such a tangled knot. Um, and he's great in White Heat. He's great in um, loads of films. But he does play the same character, and I think every now and then, mm-hmm. if he's towering above all these supporting characters, it's fine. But when he's suddenly up against you know heavyweights like Vincent Price, Ella Rainsy just smoulders him completely off the screen. Um, yeah, and, and William Bendix in this, who always comes across to me whenever I watch this film as um, 
an intelligent genius who's trapped in the body of a Labrador. It's like, you know, I can't help the way I look. I can't help the way I sound, but I'm really clever and I can totally solve this thing and I can help you, man. You just need to be honest with me. And he's not honest with him. And in the end, you get this kind of father figure relationship with him and uh, Edmund O'Brien in which he sort of has to go, right, you've, you've picked up this situation so bad i'm gonna rescue you <laughs> you know and and that leads to that beautiful <laughs> last scene which we'll get to but but i think edward o'brien i'm not saying he's a bad actor i'm just saying he's a he's of a type and he plays the same character every time and that's fine for the main output of what he does especially in the 50s he thrived because lots of golden age stars were slowing down and Edmund O'Brien sort of came up and he became this <coughs> really popular leading man who was in so many films and they were great but Back in the 40s, I think, you know, when he was up against these people who are in their prime and still, you know, knocking out of the park, every now and then he comes up against a trio like this and you just think, wow, you're just, you're you're great, but you're not good enough for this. Yeah, a little out of his depths against those three. Yeah. He, reminded, he reminded me of, or not reminded, well, what's the word I'm looking for? He made me appreciate Fred McMurray and Double Indemnity way more because... Mm. O'Brien is okay. is just moving it straight forward, and and the, in 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 contrast, I can see nuance in Fred McMurray and Double Indemnity by comparison to what this what this role is is going about. Because Fred McMurray is an average man, and he starts slowly allowing himself to dissolve. Edmund O'Brien in this film as Bob does not move an inch from his conviction of like he he the the closest he gets is to taking the gun um, without getting the permit beforehand. That's the most illegal thing he technically does in the movie. Everything else is with the purpose of, I want to know who fucked me over. Hmm. Like that, That's basically it. Whereas McMurray just swivels and drains, uh, circles the drain downward. Um, I want to jump into the plot, but beforehand, you brought up Ella Raines. Hmm. I had so much fun with Ella Raines between this and watching The Suspect last night. And 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 knowing that she was a Hawks, not a Hawks discovery, but a, a, an eventual Hawks like uh, alumnus, um, I love the story. I have we have to tell this story about her first test at Warner Brothers. Um, this was in 1942, and apparently they were told they told her after her test that she would need to get plastic surgery on her nose to play in films. Now that's got a sting for somebody who, when she was 21 at Washington University, lit a st- lit the stove of a gas oven and had the fire explode in her face and then proceed Ow. to burn her face and her hair off, <laughs> had to regrow the skin and the hair for eight months under bandages, ended up going back to school and six months bandages and all, learning who her friends really were and really weren't. That's got a sting, right? So she wires her. Literally. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I'd imagine Ella Raines is just like, I like you. <laughs> Come <Yeah>. to me, Loki. <laughs> Sorry, Ella. <laughs> um, now, uh, now that's got to that's got to hurt for somebody who's gone through that. <laughs> you change that shelf. <laughs> Take that, rewind it back. <laughs> uh, and so she wired her father, going, "Should I get it? Should I do it?" And her dad uh, wired back the following. Don't be ridiculous. Wait until camera undergoes plastic surgery. Love, Dad. <laughs> ah. 
Nice. So it's a slick line that's like, is he the that's best good. Golden Age Hollywood father? Possibly. <laughs> that's a pretty damn good line. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, she would eventually make her film debut in um, Underhawks with Corvette K225. Um, and then uh, she would end up doing Cry Havoc before really diving into Universal and working with uh, Siad Mac a bunch. Um, uh, and within the web, I, I want to jump into this because this plot is pretty straightforward. And one of the points that Adam made in his attaboy Clarence is that this is a noir that the plot does not get convoluted and it is, it, it can be about mood, but it also is about plot as well. Um, we, I mean, like, first of all, like we're, we're opening up on a train station that just has, uh, just has somebody coming out of prison and wondering why his contact isn't there and his daughter is worried about him. And then we're kind of already thrust into a little bit of mystery. Um, and then we're kind of just thrust into this underdog alt lawyer trying to get justice under corporate America with barging in like rather recklessly into a board meeting. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was right off the bat. You, you establish that Bob Regan don't give two fucks about who's wearing what suit. Um, you're in, and it lends into Adam's, uh, uh, statement about like, he's, 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 he's saying his lines. He's saying them with determination. He is a clean cut. I'm an upstart lawyer and I believe in justice. My, my, my client deserves 6872 for this push card, which the only thought that I had about that was this is the lawsuit that should happen at the end of every John Landis film or every uh, comedy film in the 80s where everybody's push cart was getting destroyed in some form of New York Street. <laughs> like, <laughs> you want, you almost want to have a follow-up film from any one of those films being like, yeah, the Blues Brothers fucking damaged my fucking window <laughs> to my store. <laughs> and then it can turn into a noir. <laughs> um, yeah, those, those guys carrying a new window across the street <laughs> that just gets obliterated. Or the guys that, for some random reason, have crates of chickens around as well and just get destroyed it's yeah what, there's a lot of there's a lot of lawsuits that could happen what, what's the family guy gag of 10 banana cream pies or something like that like just every cliche in the book you want them to just go to court like the closest you get is the seinfeld finale where everybody just like finally piles in and calls them pieces of shit um well they did it in wayne's world too as well so yeah you know, that is true so, hey isn't it weird those guys are walking across the street back and forth <laughs> it just happens of course it's, it's check it's chekhov's accident waiting to happen at the end so so but this does impress mr andrew colby um who is uh some form of uh, some form of magnate he wants money and power um and so he's already getting a call from that man at the train um mr croner um, so he's he he gives Bob the spiel. Look, I want you to be my bodyguard um, uh, for five thousand dollars because I got this guy and he's threatening me. And Bob's just like, "Well, this seems shady. Why don't you just call the cops?" Then <laughs> he goes like, "Well, I don't want publicity. And, you know, I've got a big new deal in here. You know, and uh, I I don't want anybody to come in and look at all the paintings that I bought with all this money. Oh no, I'm sorry, I'm getting out of character now." <laughs> um, somehow we'll somehow we'll pick up on though which which what you said there about um about him blustering in and and not giving a damn about you know what suit they're wearing or the hierarchy of the of the uh, of the uh, business world mm -hmm. and and he has he has this uh laser focus on getting this what however much money it was 60 odd dollars and it it 
doesn't have bring to mind uh, sort of Lee Marvin in, in Point Blank and then sort of in the pseudo remake of uh, Payback where Mel Gibson. He does exactly the same. Goes up against the sort of, okay, granted they're more mobsters, but they're the sort of the hierarchy of mm-hmm. people who have control. And he doesn't care, and he's only after a relatively small amount of money as well. And I'd never put those two those together. Well, so. you can you can draw that to any like hero with one basic goal. Like, what does Jack mm-hmm. Burton really want in Big Trouble in Little China? He wants his fucking truck back. He wants his truck. <laughs> he wants his truck back. That's the only reason he that's goes it. around with Dennis Dunn for an entire ninety minutes. Yeah. I, want- I, just, I think that's kind of cool, though. If you've got that that sort of focus on just the, the 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 smaller detail, but it's still important to them. Instead of going for oh, instead of sort of turning around and going, do you know what? I could get a lot more money out of these guys. Right. But he never does. He doesn't care. So, the, but the difference then with with Bob is that he's. He's at the point then where he's he's got what he wants, but now he has an offer to make his law firm bigger. Like sure. $5,000 is around 60-something thousand dollars by today money. So he's going to be able to put up the practice for at least a year maybe. So like him, he's not thinking twice about getting a gun out of Colby's like little station there and then taking it to get the permit later. Um and so when William Bendix is awfully surprised by this, you start to see William Bendix's brilliance in it because he's throwing in his knowledge of humor into this mix. It's the smarmy cop. It's it's something that he is able to chew on. He's the funniest character in the movie, I would think, hands down. Um, because I would argue that uh, fun moments with, Bob and uh, Noel, played by Ella Raines, are meh. <laughs> they're, they're not like the best noir romance moments I've ever seen. I would like to um, see a story between Lieutenant D'Amico and Noel. I think they would make a great, <laughs> they would make a great double act. Oh my that God, would that would be wonderful. And then he can say what a revolt and development this is in the middle of the movie. <laughs> Just to please everybody. <laughs> no, you're right. He would be a more charismatic, like, co-bill with Ella Raines. Um, in fact, they were in another movie together, White Tie and Tales, uh, from 1946 as well. So it was from the year before. So they had worked together before. Um, and And so within that, he does get the permit because he pulls the whole, well, my dad knew your dad card. <laughs> and... Suddenly, he's just able to get a permit super quick. Now, this permit, you know, enacted by the Sullivan Act, requiring you to get a permit, it 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 shows the loopholes. If you're able to go like, but my dad and your dad used to play, my dad and you used to play hopscotch together, so therefore, give me a gun permit. <laughs> it's, it's hopscotch. It's, Is that prison slang? Do you think? I, I don't know. He's not telling. D'Amico's not saying a damn word. He goes like, all right, fine, 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 fine. You go down and you do the whole protocol thing and I'll call the chief. He hit this watch for 20 years. <laughs> up his ass. <laughs> he hit this watch up his ass, Junior. <laughs> As he... God damn it. William Bendix giving the fucking watch speech. If Quentin Tarantino had made Pulp Fiction in 
47. First of all, mm -hmm. there'd be a lot of cuts to that script. But second of all, if he got the watch scene through, William Bendix would have been in Christopher Walken's shoes. Do you know yeah. what? I, I totally... That's one of the greatest compliments I think you can pay to the career of William Bendix is if he was still around today, he would have been in every Tarantino film without a doubt. I, without a question. <laughs> Him and Larry Tierney. Which... Yeah. <laughs> well, I think one was enough. <laughs> <laughs> Same with one yeah, episode exactly. of Seinfeld. <laughs> that's a story. That that's a, every. If you don't know that story, look it up, guys. It's pretty fun. But yeah, so he gets the gun. He's got it all set up, and he's proving to be the most inefficient bodyguard on the planet because he just decides to go mac on Ella Rains, and in the process. His employer naturally gets accosted by this Kroner guy, but he does shoot him. He gets there in time to shoot him. Mm -hmm. And then now the plot becomes about, okay, well, I killed him in self-defense. The deal is done, but something doesn't add up right because William Bendix rightfully so goes, you're full of horseshit. Mm. <laughs> and this, none of this adds up. You get a gun permit in the morning and suddenly in the evening you're battling some guy in duel? Like, this doesn't make sense. I, I'm sorry. You, I think you're fucking guilty. And so Bob Regan starts immediately getting filled with uh, killer's guilt um, and just really trying to figure out, okay, what's going on here? What's happened? So I want to ask, like, you guys in there, and we're this far in the plot. Is it checking all these wonderful boxes for you for a noir? Like, is it doing the job more or less efficiently for you? Because the only thing that I found out about, that I could think to comment on with this film is that it's not the, – the plot seems a little bit more like something I'd hear on a radio show than necessarily as something as convoluted as a noir film. But visually, it looks like a noir film. It, it feels like a noir film. So I'm wondering if that hits, if it hits the same way for you guys, where the plot is not strict, like doesn't hit strictly noir, but it feels like one. Smoky. That's a really good question. Um, yeah, I, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but I, I think you're probably right. Um, it definitely feels like like a noir, but does it really hit that that note all the way through it? I guess maybe not. Um, also, I'd like to, I think you were right there to point out the fact is that not only <clears throat> is he an ineffectual bodyguard, he's an ineffectual bodyguard because he isn't doing what it says on the tin. He doesn't guard the body. <laughs> I mean, he, he's employed by Vincent Price to be his bodyguard. But he's got and another he's body to guard. <laughs> he, well, this is true. He chooses a different body to guard. <laughs> but he's, he's never in the same room as him, hardly. And when he is, he's just talking and there's no threat there at all. So it's a very odd thing. Um, I, maybe maybe it's just better to call it a a more more straightforward thriller. A, I think I think crime thriller is a is a yeah. is a good definition for what it technically is. But yeah. the noir feel about it does kick in, and I would I would say it's still a noir because it does deal with a crime that that more so in the latter half of the film i think i'd go with that yes more, more than more than the, the beginning um but i i just know that you and i are saying this zach and adam's going to completely disagree with us now it, it's totally it. fine if he does i want, I want to, <laughs> we want to hear all opinions on the valley who it's not just a straightforward bonanza no, like I, I, agree. I, can, I can just feel it i can feel it here <laughs> uh, sorry i disagree with you on what that you you think it's more of a crime thriller than a noir Is that what um yes mm. Yeah, well, 
like I mean, I mean, noir is totally undefinable anyway. You know, no one's ever been mm-hmm, able to mm-hmm. say this. You know, if it has this, 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 and this, it's a noir film. For me, it feels like a noir, especially when they're round the. the well, it does. It does. It feels like a noir. <laughs> I, I can't. Know, I can't I'm just joking. But when they're playing the, you know, round the uh, the pool table and they're having the conversation, the dialogue mm-hmm. is all noir. Him and Ella Rain's mm-hmm. their relationship. That's straight out of the noir playbook. The whole thing, you know, it feels like he's being sucked into quicksand the whole through that throughout the whole film and that sort of encroaching danger that sort of oppressiveness you know he's going to be he's got he's got to he's got to somehow free himself from the charge of murder they're trying to hang on him while you know he's trying trying mm-hmm. to also catch the snake that set him up kind of thing i mean that's a total noir situation whether it's you know officially noir it's definitely not for me to say but um i do think i do like it like you said in my review, what I love most about this film is that I watch noir films sometimes. Dark Corner is a perfect example of this. I can mm-hmm. remember who plays who. I couldn't tell you about the story beats, and I, you know, the the dialogue at times is so impenetrable that um, you just watch it for the mood of the thing. It's like looking at a painting. You you, you mm-hmm. get your own sort of interpretation of it, and, and I find noir cinema sometimes to be a little bit too impenetrable. Because it's trying to be mm-hmm. cool, or it's trying to, you know, it's trying to be, I don't know, it's trying to be a noir, um, which is the only way I can really think to well, put the, it. The, but sometimes the, you get the, uh, two the big, characters. The, yeah, big sleep. Big sleep, the big perfect sleep, perfect example. Yeah. Like sometimes you'll get two characters sat in a car and they're shooting barbs at each other, and you're like, is this part of the story? They fire names at each other, you know, when so and so Rocco was Rocco was yeah, but did you hear what Bendix did? And sometimes the amount of information and the the fact that they don't deliver it in a way that's I don't know digestible, but in a noir style, I find myself watching a lot of noir and not digesting the plot or the story really. I'm just there for the mood. Mm-hmm. I always find with the web, it's one of those ones that's really easy to. You always know where you are. You're always aware of how you're supposed to be feeling about the character and where he is so far in the story, who's after him, what he's trying to get himself out of. I don't. I don't find it as impenetrable as a lot of film noir. So um, I, right. I really like this film right. for that reason. There are a couple actually that I really like for that very reason because I do find myself getting a, a little bit lost. I think it's probably my brain. I don't think it's the filmmaker's fault. Yeah. It's just the fact that I can't watch. No. It's your brain. I look at the yeah. surface of the brain. water. Yeah. I can't see the whole lake at the same time. That's, that's the problem with me. <laughs> that's not true. Yeah. We gave you I've goggles got, for I, Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've got to say, uh, on, a, on a personal note, something I'm really starting to notice more and more, and something I'm really starting to love, is, because I've had it in two films in, in, in this week, once in the web, and then once in uh, the film we're doing for Hammer next, which is The House Across the Lake, mm. which is with Alex Nichol and Sid James. And it's exposition scenes around a billiard table. Mm-hmm. I'm noticing it more and more and more in films. And it's, they can be playing, they can be not playing. It doesn't matter. But you've got that circle. You know, think of like Tom, Tom Cruise and Pollock in Eyes Wide Shut as well. Mm-hmm. You know, they just sort of circle around that oblong table. A circle around an oblong? You know what I mean? <laughs> and... And and it's just and when it's done really well, which it has been in both the films I've watched this week, I'm I'm getting quite obsessed with mm. it. 
And mm-hmm. so anytime I see that green bays or black and white bays in some films, it's just sort of like, ooh, a- something something interesting is going to happen here and it's going to set up really nicely. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, it did in the web. As well, well, it's a great metaphor, isn't it? Because it's like two gladiators. Mm. It doesn't matter what is yeah. between them or what sort of their circle, like you say. Um, they could be playing any kind of game. Whether it's a game of darts, game of tennis, yeah. or around a billiard chess. table. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Billiard tables look cooler because you know you've got your own lighting really in there. Do. You've got a bar in there. You've got drinks in there, mm. sort of thing. So they're not in bright yeah. whites in the sunshine playing badminton or whatever. But billiard, if you put that sort of sport or that match or something between them as yeah. they're plying each other and finding finding out about each other, mm-hmm. it's a great way of shortcutting who's in who's in charge, who's the more canny. You know, it's yeah. a great, mm-hmm. it's a great way of. But it, but it's also a natural thing, especially if you're playing at home or you're in a, you know, a club or a pub or whatnot, and you're playing. You do chat to your opponent. It's not like in a professional. Yeah, it's setting. like Xbox Live, so it doesn't it? feel like. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it doesn't feel like forced exposition mm. because they're just they're just having a chat. Whereas, like you were saying, sometimes they could be driving along and firing this nonsense back and forth between each other, and it can feel a little forced sometimes. But. When they're circling the bay, it's the bays. It's just sort of like, okay, this feels like a natural conversation. I feel like you're talking about specifically in the web because we have the we have the we have the pool scenes, but we also have the card scene where it's after Bob has kind of already gone to uh, D'Amico and go like, I think I got been framed, and D'Amico goes like, I don't care, I still think you did it. Um, but then he, um, but then he goes to Colby, and he and Colby are playing cards, and they're basically exchanging theories, and you're hearing Colby's response, and it's something I, I see a lot of modern films do this today, where they have the the good guy and the bad guy like exchange witty banter back and forth with each other in order to expound upon like I know you're the bad guy, and it goes like I know you know I'm the bad guy, and so like but they're but in this case. Like one's holding, each is holding their their cards close to their chest as much as possible. With Regan maybe letting out a little bit more, and Colby standing his ground, going like, "Yeah, but don't forget, I pay you." And then so it's it's a lovely little scene that gets acknowledgement out of the way and gives Regan something further to explore when he finally starts going down the little spiral that he does in order to try to figure out who, like, what's up behind this whole plot. Um, but I will say that. Pool scenes also provide a wonderful way for Vincent Price to make us aware that we're watching Vincent Price because I absolutely love the line uh, when, when it's uh, Regan asks what kind of man Mr. Colby is and Colby goes, Attractive, generous, warm-hearted, brilliant. Good shot, Mr. Colby. Thank you. Won't you join me? I'm like, that's not fair. You don't get to describe yourself in real life in the movie. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. I didn't realize if he fair. didn't, I would have done it for him. I didn't realize Kermit the Frog was in the film. <laughs> <laughs> they were best mates, remember? Yeah. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I shot Kroner. <laughs> uh, oh, nice. Waka, waka. I framed him. <laughs> Ah, Regan, put on a gun. (laughs) Go on, Smokey. Um, Jump in there. Go on. (laughs) No, I'm not going anywhere near that. Are we gonna? Are we? We can duel, Smokey. I've been waiting for it this whole week. Let's have a price off. The price is shite. Come on, let's do it. Oh, the price is shite. (laughs) Come on now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah. Um, so 
Bob Regan is on the move trying to figure out who set him up. And along the way, he stumbles upon information regarding an engraver. And he gets this information from a journalist who's now too good for newspapers. He's a novelist now. And he uh, learns about this engraver named Victor Bruno, um, which I found actually pretty fascinating in terms of like how if you want to incorporate a noir, if you're incorporating like a, a post-war element of sorts, like immigrants coming over to America around the time period that they're talking about mm. would have been fleeing Europe at that point. And so it yep. is interesting to be like, like the 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 jobs that they would get into after coming to America. Like there's a it's it's not like a poignant commentary, but it was an interesting little layer that's added to the film and it brings you into the moment that this film takes place in, in its present day of 47. And I always like films that are like strictly a time capsule of their time. Like Casablanca is a very strict like time capsule of a certain moment when Hollywood is Hollywood and America are going to war mm. and ends up becoming a lot about a lot more. But this one just has a nice little layer of that. And the Victor Bruno character plays into the film in such a way that they're that Regan is able to use it as a chip to basically pull Colby uh, into the ring and really discover what Colby's up to. And he does do this by basically using uh, Noel Noel's character with the information that she gives him. And then that's when I feel it becomes a little noirish in the sense that people are double crossing, triple crossing other people. That's when it starts becoming a web of sorts, as it were. Mm. Um, and um, that then, and in that respect, I guess what I'm saying when I say that it doesn't feel like a noir traditionally, I, I'm more like with Smokey, where it starts off as a crime thriller and then it becomes a noir by the end of it, because then things start becoming a little bit more complicated. Mm. Not so much that you can't follow it, but there's enough like you did this to me, but I did this to do this. And then Vincent Price is going like, she betrayed me. Oh no. And so yeah, they're double crossing. Exactly. It's crisscrossing yeah. as it were. And, yeah. uh, and that's when I start seeing even more uh, price is brilliant in the movie because up till now he's played sheepish and, or slick corporate executive. This is where you start to see him unravel with paranoia mixed with more or less confidence of like, I've wrapped this up before I can wrap this up again. <laughs> and mm. I, I genuinely love as everything unfolds, Regan sets up Colby with basically a blackmail scheme of like, deliver me $10,000. The way he does that is by using a proxy for Victor Bruno in the form of his client who is still owed money for that push cart. <laughs> and I love how he's just like, you you didn't get me my money yet? No, 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 no. But I need you to pretend to be a, 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 a counterfeiter, please. <laughs> like, I'm owed money. <laughs> like, you're my lawyer. <laughs> this seems wrong. And yeah, go ahead. No, it's just because I, when you say in regards to the setup, I mean, there's that wonderful line that Bendix does say to him. He says, "You are the most set up guy I've yes. ever met." Yes, <laughs> and oh it's my true. God. How many how many times has he been framed through the entire is film? The, and it's just like, yeah, he's he's a bad penny. This, this one. The, the thing is, this movie it sounds very convoluted when you try and describe it. When you watch it, it's very mm. simple. 
basically, I know. Uh, you know, um, Bob is being set up and set up and set up. He's being set up. You know, even the setups are being set up, but you know, for something else <laughs> underneath. So that when the because the first act is, you know, he wanders into this web. Uh, naively. Second act is him going, uh, you know, trying to escape the police sort of investigation that Bendix is throwing at him because he's convinced that there's something nefarious going on. Third third act of this film is where it really gets going because, I mean, uh, not to yeah. say it's boring, but it, suddenly it just falls in on itself. It's like Inception. All of a sudden, him and Ella Raines are both set up almost watertight by Vincent Price, mm-hmm. who not only set some up mm-hmm. for the killing that happened earlier in the film, but also for an embezzlement and for another murder. So they're on the run, but they don't even know they're on the run. Well, they've just arranged for a yeah. train station. They meet up, and all of a sudden they're, you know, arrested and by Bendix and his team, who are like, well, you know, we've got a body there. We've got uh, you having stolen the money. We've got this, you, know, you are done. You are arrested. You are out of the game kind of thing. And you mm-hmm. wonder how on earth um, they're going to get themselves out of it. And it, it leads yeah. to this brilliant, I have to say, brilliant last 10 minutes. That, yeah, that awesome. on the run sequence, by the way, you want to talk about noir, how you shoot noir and how you stage it. It's 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 one thing to to do it with your lighting and your shadow. It's another thing to just also create suspense, even in something as mundane as a train station. Mm. And, I, and we know Hitchcock's been good with that. Well, mm-hmm. this one does a very lovely, lovely setup of Reigns is being followed by uh, by Bob, and Bob is being followed by the plays. Yeah. They're ba- it's like it's it's a nice little line. Yeah. It's, it's its own train. It's almost you know. Keystone Cops, isn't it? You know, <laughs> you got person follow someone else is following them. Someone else is following them. It's like this snake's going to eat his own tail. It's very clever. But instead of comedy, we're treating. And instead of comedy, it is it is weaving a tight suspenseful little sequence there mm. and it starts off in a noir aesthetic underneath the the street lamps and everything which i do love how he gets the plot by the way uh the plot of how to blackmail by the way mm. from uh, a guy nearly killing him with a street lamp on <laughs> 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 um, the glass just falling down but yeah that that train sequence happens and then it's basically set up that they have robbed him uh robbed colby of his money in the safe and not only that but they've killed Charles and John the sequence yeah. where he, yeah, John Habit's yeah, character, yeah. Mm. the scene where Colby kills Charles cold in blooded. order to, yeah. Cold <laughs> it's Colby blooded. blooded. And it's, <laughs> it's Colby blooded. I did it for you, the Frankie. Performance. <laughs> <laughs> the lighting and the performance in that scene that is like I love that Vincent Price is this horror maestro. That man could be sinister without needing a house of wax mm. or or a house on a haunted hill. This guy is terrifying. He liked his houses, didn't he? Yeah, he did like his yeah, house of wax, houses. house of haunted hill, um, house at the end of the street. No, that's um, uh, Jennifer that's Lawrence. A very, that's <laughs> a very different one. Yeah, yeah. yeah sorry, no. Um, it's fine, but the, the thing I love about that is that again, again, this is maybe just me. Is that, uh, especially uh, at the end when, when, when uh, Bendix has just sort of said, "Right, and do you recognise this money?" And it's like, "Yeah, of course, that's that's my ten grand that was in my, <laughs> by the way, wonderful safe. By the way, I want a safe like that behind fake books. I think that looks awesome." Um, but As if and, you and, have and, even, and even though you know, 
Well, this is true. But even <laughs> even though we saw the scene, we saw the scene where he said, look, open it up, take the money out, and off you go. Mm-hmm. And, and when he, but he turns around and just sort of goes, well, yes, that's my money. She must have gone in the safe and taken it. It's like, oh, you little shit. He and used, it's still like, that's so cool. He uses all the <laughs> angles of just like, look, she's been my secretary for eight years. She knows all the combos to my stuff. You know, it's mm. it's just... Did you notice that, though? Mm-hmm. I, I loved it, the, the repeat of that line. Because mm-hmm. he said, oh, she... she She's been my secretary for years and I've trusted her implicitly. And then as soon as he finds out that Colby is quote unquote, uh, not Colby, his, uh, Charles is quote unquote alive, he uses the same line again. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, he's my trusted friend. I've known him for years. And it's sort of like, ah, he's unraveling here. Yeah. He's running out of excuses. And I thought it was really clever. Right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's remarkable. You, 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 you realize like he just has this, he's keeps having, trying to go for this. He has this seemingly airtight alibi. Like he is, he is, yeah frame this so perfectly and then as they have them all rounded up they they're about to book bob and noel on murder and theft and then it's discovered that charles is alive Mm. what so they're gonna hold the body in one room uh and keep everybody in the house essentially and then this is when we get the the beautiful end reveal Mm mm-hmm of this film, which really, it's mostly Vincent Price in this moment here, selling the paranoia of like, did I get away with it? Like, it's the only time you see him actually sweat. Uh, And and that's my favorite scene of the film, I have to admit, mm -hmm. because we've literally gone for him being quite cool under pressure. He is faltering a little bit, but then it just cuts to another scene and he's sat by himself he's lighting a cigarette and his hands are shaking yeah. and he can't quite get it lit and then that's it and it's mm-hmm. just that quick yeah and it's just vincent bryce on screen yeah just doing that all the way through I thought the, it's a wonderful scene absolutely all the way through as well because he's so calm so collected so in control so mm. like as you say slick to see him lose his cool even for that brief scene is just all the payoff you want. It's great. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's fantastic. And then as he does go to approach the body, light goes up and goes like, "No, you don't need to. You don't need to bother with that. He's been dead since you shot him." Mm-hmm. Bendix, our, really our nice. boy Bendix, <laughs> Bendix, <laughs> the win. <laughs> oh, there's no one else. You I mean you? You know, you've watched the whole film with. Edmund O'Brien and Ella Rain's taking center stage, but there's no one else you want to get them out of it more than William Bendix at that moment. And to know that he was, you know, I knew you were innocent. Shut the hell up. Go marry that girl. Let me clear up this <laughs> your, mess. Your dad and I played hopscotch together. We know for a fact you couldn't kill a fucking fly. Yeah, exactly. Someone call a vet because these swans are sick. <laughs> oh, look at that. <laughs> it's oh. like it's such a flex. Is it moment. getting hot in here? <laughs> Take off it's all your clothes, smoking. <laughs> oh dear me! But what uh, a but then swollen also... development this is. <laughs> but, but then, but then there's the 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 sort of the comedic payoff as well at the end of them. Sort of, you know, he sort of tries to get the the sixty odd dollars. That so no, that didn't work. You can sue him for that. And he said, ah, well, he's not as smart as you think he is because we've still got the tickets to to fuck off to Mexico. And it's like he already knew. He already knew <laughs> what you were doing. So, well, big bad right. Billy Bendix. You, you, I, I want to give. I want to give like a, a sort of a slight play by play of my watching this for the first time, already loving Bendix's performance, and then watching that that uh, that reveal, 
And I was like, oh, shit. And then, you know, we get a little bit of banter afterwards. And then the moment he comes back in and goes like, don't don't forget, you got to check before you leave the country. I'm like, this is the best thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> this is the, like, oh, my God, 20 Oscars, all of them going to book fucking Bendix boy right over uh, here. Like, I just I never I just like I, my my experience with him on radio didn't prep me for how slick and smooth he could be on film. Because you could see him in a couple of different roles. But this one, I don't know, for some reason, it just hit me the right way going like, this is what I would want Bendix to be if he were working today. Like he would be this slick, mm -hmm. this slick operator. You could put him in a heist movie under these same auspices in the same degree. He'd come off beautifully in that. Mm -hmm. um, but but yeah, I mean, that, that that is the end of the film. And we get uh, the, the, the fallout of this film is interesting uh, for a brief touch on this. I wanted to talk about it in the terms of Universal and where they were at this point. Universal International, as Smokey and I talked about with Ben on uh, the um, on the Shrinking Man episode. The Shrinking Man, yeah. Yeah, Universal was going through yet another identity crisis, <laughs> um, where they um, they were uh, they they were gobbled up by International mm -hmm. and they were changing their slate up. They were getting rid of they were chucking Bud and Lou out the door uh, conceivably. They were getting rid of the the horror unit. And this was one of many films that they were putting out in an attempt to stretch out prestige. Um, they were also throwing out the um, Arthur Rankin uh, productions, I believe, with like Lawrence Olivier's Hamlet being one of them that they distributed here. Um, the, the outline that you get of this is that there's only a few films that seem to really click for them in this vein. The Killers is one of them mm. um, by Robert Siodmak. Um, but this film, I went ahead and actually looked up through Variety, and I'll do this very briefly, box office. And I only wanted to track it to give it in a sense of like, this is why Universal would end up saying, oh shit, where, where are those two comedians and our monsters? Where did they go? Um, because the reviews on this are actually pretty stunning. And then we have... The box office receipts coming in. It premieres on May 28th, 1947. Uh, Variety's own mini review says straightforward crime melodrama with quality presentation and uh, hefty audience interest. Well, the audience um, sort of seemed to arrive because the box office returns in smaller seat theaters as of uh, May 28th, saying that it was looking to hit a pleasing 51,000 or close in five theaters, mostly small. So they did a rollout. Um, and then the by the time you get to July, it goes to the Guild Theater, or to June, sorry, to June. When you get to June, it goes to the Guild Theater in LA. In its second week, it's fading to $3,000 after a $5,700 start. So then if you look at other territories in the country, in the Criterion Theater, it's doing good in a big city aesthetic, 31,000. Then it goes down to about 21,000 and then 19,500. In, the in the smaller cities that are not on the big ends of the coast, you start su suddenly seeing 18,000, 16,000, 3,000, mm. nothing. There are there, literally the a report from July 9th in Philadelphia says that uh, the the web is one of the two films that they have on the bill that are getting weak responses. Um, 
in Pittsburgh, it says nothing very exciting among the other new picks with Riff Raff at Warner's and the web at Harris doing so so. So this film's not failing, but it's not doing what Universal wants it to do. They're wanting to output a minimal slate with big returns. That doesn't happen for them. And so that's why the following year, they take a chance on rebooting Abbott and Costello and teaming in with the monsters, among other decisions they decide to make. Not the least of which two years later would be Francis the Talking Mule. Um, so, um, so it's kind of interesting to look at this film that we all loved, we all enjoyed, um, but we're, we, we know that it's not in the vein of like the high art classics, but it's a film that we enjoy. This was a film that was kind of considered a moderate to not so quite hit. Like it just, it, it did all right. If you, if, if ultimate rankings is to be believed, which I will not say it's the definite source because there was nothing to cite, uh, cite on it. It said that it made about $2.7 million at the box office, but that's not the returns they're wanting. And that's not the prestige that Universal's wanting. So it's, I think it's fascinating to look at these kind of films because these are the fil- these are literally the filler that are coming out in order to sustain the studio's output in time for A pictures or other event pictures. And yet they they have gone on to become part of a whole threshold of a genre, let alone an entire age of Hollywood that we go back to these films because we enjoy a good pot boiler from this era. We enjoy these character actors, whether they be Vincent Price, Ella Raines, or William Bendix. And they have been able to cultivate their own audience years down the line. I kind of love that it's not about necessarily learning a lesson this time around. It's just that it's interesting to watch how something that might have been seen as disposable by the end of its run has been able to find its own life again. Um, And I think that that's, I mean, obviously what Adam, what you do on your show is a good testament to that. But Smokey, you're doing the same thing on Hammer with finding films that, you know, you find gems amid some of the other ones that aren't quite so great. And yet, and yet these are films that were just seen as like, okay, it, it did its job. Now we can toss it into the fire and then we can move on to the next product that's coming around. Something that's considered this disposable product is something gold now, you know, that's the thing. So, if you look at the top ranking films of 1947, the year this came out, wall to wall comedy. People didn't want darkness and noir. I mean, look at the top 10 films Welcome Stranger, that's Bing Crosby and Barry Fitzgerald, The Egg and I, Unconquered Life with Father, Road to Rio, mm-hmm. Batter and the Bobby Soxer. You know, these are all films. People wanted lightness, they wanted charm, they didn't want to be sucked into rabbit. But there were people who did want to see that stuff, and they're the people who went to see the web. And I would say 2.6 million um, might not have been a legendary amount, but my God, that was a lot of money back in the day. So, um, oh, yeah, $66 million. Yeah, I mean- so, I mean, that is perfect. You know, it made its money back. It satisfied the noir crowd. It got them back next week for something else. And, you know, that that's probably all they were aiming for. But I would say, of those films I just mentioned, Welcome Stranger, Egg and I, they're not revisited much these days. They're not. I mean, they were for that moment in history. Whereas mm-hmm. films like The Web, that can be analysed and talked about and marvelled over, years to come, didn't cost mm-hmm. anything, um, and don't hurt the fact that they're sat there in history somewhere for us to find. Um, they're mm-hmm. the films that have lasted. And they're, they're it's a wonderful life. Perfect example of that. 
didn't make a ton yes. of money when it was released, but my God, it's been rediscovered because these are gems. This is what I love about B-movies. You asked me at the beginning of the show. You know, they're just, they're so endlessly watchable and endlessly rediscoverable. So um, mm-hmm. I don't think the fact that it wasn't a, a massive world-beating hit at the time doesn't matter. The fact is that... No, no, it doesn't. Hey, yeah. 75 years later, three of us have been enthralled and raptured and charmed by this film so uh, yeah and actually there 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 is in a sense a a way to connect it to today how many films do we come do we do we see in a theater just us wanting to watch a film and we come out going like oh my god i hope everybody sees this movie and it does nothing scott pilgrim versus the world is my go-to example for this of Mm -hmm. like i went opening weekend to that there was nobody in that theater same avatar for me yeah i've I've been trying to get people to watch that film for years (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh you end you get marvel avengers endgame it's another one I just, yeah you know, i don't know yeah, anyone who's seen that yeah that no, film needed some help yeah right? no exactly <laughs> it's, it's, no everybody it's generations the web That's what yeah everybody knows <laughs> yeah. everybody knows that the irishman made a billion dollars at the box office and it was netflix's <laughs> biggest hit um yeah. no but yeah no i and i am serious like the the idea of a cult classic like you could put the web in that canon to a degree i think that it's noir pedigree or it's it's um uh alignment with noir values it puts it in a different like camp for some people but i don't think there's anything wrong with calling it a cult classic no. because it is something that's kind of it's not something that's going to be regularly run on tcm necessarily like no. but hopefully it would be like it's it's one of the many entries that should it's great um, and it's also a great it's a great Vincent Price film. Like I don't mean that, and you know, Vincent Price he's associated with horror so much. It's a great Vincent Price movie. If you could put this in a Vincent Price programmer and be very happy, even though he's fourth build, doesn't matter. It's a great Vincent Price film. So um, yeah, it is. It's, it's it gonna really last is. because of that, if yeah. nothing else. Yeah, and I think that it's and I, and I like that it's another area for people to get into uh, an actor like William Bendix, who we've lavished a lot of praise upon um and the the uh the the thing that breaks my heart to a certain extent is that he did die uh die not soon but like you know he was he was younger than probably most people would have passed away at that point uh in his field um but he did say something in an interview in 1960 um uh that just make, gives me comfort to think about He summed this up about his entire life. I've had a long, varied, pleasant, eventful career. I don't hate anybody. I don't have any bitter thoughts. I started out without any advantages, but I've been lucky and successful and I've had fun. There's no, 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 like soliloquy about the harshness of his life. Just like, I had fucking fun. Mm. (laughs) Just like I've had fucking fun. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, let's hope we can all say that. Yeah. Well, I can because I've had fucking fun talking to you guys about <laughs> oh, the we web. We had fun coming here today. So <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. that, what a that, movie! That, really quickly, yeah, that, gentlemen, cup. is there any last parting words you have about the web? Um, I know, I know, Adam, you you eloquized on it beautifully. Smokey, do you have any final thoughts on it? I think sometimes uh, films. Uh, we actually, when Adam and I recorded last night, we we. Um, said something quite similar, which is generic titles sometimes don't help uh, films, especially uh, Golden Age <laughs> cinema ones, but um, the web fits this, fits this film 
Fantastically, a lot better than Jeopardy would have done. Yeah, me. yeah, that's that's uh, that's know, the but... that's the only thing I would have wanted to circle back to really quickly is like is just what's the writers' room in Universal like where they're just like I don't know uh, Black Velvet. No, no, the horse race people are are fucking yeah. banging at our door. Uh shit, uh, Jeopardy. No, 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 that's yeah. gonna be a TV show years later with a nice Canadian. I'll I'll, I'll, I'll take Vincent Price films for three hundred, please, Zachary. But, uh, yeah, what is a tangled thriller with Vincent Price? There you go. Um, uh, 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 oh, I don't know. Um, uh, the stickening. No, 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 no. Wait, that's <laughs> the web. The oh, web. you were so close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, no, I mean I, the Spider-Man. Is, um, oh, there you go. Um, well, he already did the bat, so you might as well do the Spider-Man. Oh. So, um, uh, no, I mean as crime thrillers slash noir goes, this is highly enjoyable, and it wouldn't have been out of place on. All the best lines. Um, it's funny what you were saying there, though, uh, Zach. Is about uh, we we don't always go for the you know the the you know the big titles, mm-hmm. and we have drifted on purpose, I, I should say, to ones that Adam especially thinks that more people should know. That's how we ended up doing. It's love I'm after. It's how we've ended up doing the suspect as well, and and, and the big clock, mm-hmm. and it's and and the web fits in exactly with those. Yep films that deserves to be seen by more right because it's thoroughly enjoyable it's not taxing at all as you say it's not a convoluted plot it's pretty straightforward mm. it's easy it's easy to follow yeah. a few twists and turns to to keep it interesting and then you've got a bloody wonderful cast so it's it's a great film and it really should be known better right. by more i agree and it's and that's mm. one of the things that i like is that you guys have gone down that route because mm. I, I love talk of talk of the the, the heavy hitters but like like some of the things that like stuck with me in continuing into golden age Hollywood were exploring the films of comedians that I like, or like some of the, some of the lesser films of maybe a Cagney or a Robinson, like trying to, trying to fill up more of my genre spots in places. Like I love Bogart. I like watching Bogart before he becomes the Bogart we all know and love. It's interesting to watch that progression of him just playing the weasel who gets banged in the third act, like just taken out. Not bang, taken out. Um, oh, we know. Yeah. We, well, kind of, but yeah. But then it's also, it returns back to something Adam said earlier, you know, about what his love for B-movies. And you do get these A-listers who do drop into the B-movies to, you know, earn a bit of money. Mm-hmm. But then, like you said, with Hammer, you know, we're in the 50s now. We're getting the, uh, former A-list Americans coming over to, to Britain to, to film with Hammer. Mm-hmm. And... They, whether they've elevated the picture or not, it's good to have them there. You know, we've had Cesar Romero and we've had Dane Clark or Dan Daria. And in a few episodes, Paul Henry, few, yeah, but yeah. And in a few episodes' time, we've got uh, Lloyd Bridges coming over to take the lead <laughs> in a Hammer film. Who knew? And it's just like, and that's wonderful to see as well because okay, they couldn't, you know, for for whatever reason, like you know, maybe like say Dane Clark who fell out with uh, Jack Warner. It's sort of like, but no, but okay, we're getting them over here now. So they're still acting. <laughs> you, they're still making a film good. Did you say you know, you've got Lloyd Bridges coming up? Yes, we do. Wow, looks like I picked the wrong time to give up the Hammer podcast. Oh, it's not going to get any better, Zach. No. <laughs> um, can, well. I, can I just quickly um, say that um, there are certain movies that are sort of these lightning in a bottle uh, instances of cinematic wonderfulness and the mm-hmm. web is one of them because if you are new to old films and you don't know where to start if you hit a film like the web you'll go wow vincent price 
I didn't realise he did these kind of films before mm-hmm. Theatre of Blood and Witchfinder General. Wow, I want to explore more of his. Also, who was that gr- great guy, the, the one who played the detective? Wow, what else is yeah. he? Lifeboat. That's going to take you to Hitchcock. Then you've all of a sudden you've got Ella Raines. She'll take you to The Suspect. She'll take you to Morsi Odd Max stuff. She'll take you to Charles Lawton. Mm-hmm. And then you've got Eben O'Brien will take you through to The Bigamist. And then you'll find Ida Lupino. And then you'll go to The Hitchhiker. Mm-hmm. So it's one of these films oh, I that... I The Hitchhiker. Yeah, I mean, I, Such a so so it's one of these films where it's a great one to, you know, I really like old films, so I don't know where to start. All right, 1947's The Web. You'll never have heard of it. You'll enjoy the story. It's really simple to follow. You'll all all of a sudden understand kind of what a noir film is. You'll, you'll get a twist, and you'll fall in love with four people who you want to mm-hmm. explore more, and they will take you all the way through the rungs and the, the veins and the capillaries yeah. of old Hollywood. So it's, it's, a, it's a good film in that terms. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Sort of for, me, for me, it boils down to uh, the, the very simple fact is that I do like a good, I, I do like a good like convoluted, uh, not convoluted because this is very simple, but like, how do I put this? Um, a uh, intricate uh, crime plot. Um, mixed in with really good actors. Um, there was a notice in one of the um, uh, uh, one of the box office reports that the web was doing well in spite of so few names. And I was like, that that is such a uh, that's a statement that's I guess fair to make in the star system at that time. But mm-hmm. at this point now, William Bendix, Ella Raines, Edmund O'Brien, uh, Vincent Price, they all have at least one following on Twitter that you could find somewhere, whether oh, it's through... Me. And John Abbott, please. From yes, oh yes. Murder. Let's <laughs> not forget you. the John Abbott fan club. But that, that, that. That, leads to, mm-hmm. that leads to other fandoms for other actors, you know, like Elisha Cook, um, John Loder. <laughs> um, oh, there are talking. fan clubs for any actor out there. <laughs> uh, there is Stranger. Yeah. Stranger. <laughs> oh, Stranger. I, you know what? I, I, it, it, I've been doing the Jack Benny convention for a while. It's only fair that we start a John Loder convention over the oh, internet. I think so. <laughs> and it'll, we'll have special guests on, like a fernwood tree and a pine tree. And <laughs> Lots of and, of wood. and to leave to leave the convention, you have to walk off a roof. <laughs> <laughs> to applause, to applause, and it's a TikTok challenge. That's not a, and that's not a the John Loder challenge. <laughs> John Loder, John. And that is that is not an active call for anybody to do that. Disclaimer, disclaimer, uh, disclaimer. We, we we all have to go applaud, damn you, applaud, <laughs> applaud, damn you, applaud. <laughs> Here's how you do it. Instead, oh, you 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 walk right off of a ledge into a ball pit. That's the safe way. <laughs> you, but you have to fall I, I, like John Loder. <laughs> I say next. I say next time we come on uh, Ballyhoo, uh, Zach, uh, Adam, and I should talk about the Brighton Strangler. I, I mean, the I you know what, be, I can't be, talk be, about that film enough. We, yeah. if, if we did it, it would be a good introduction to an American audience. Because as I was telling one of my friends who was on the show not too long ago, um, I was just I was trying to describe it to him. And I was just like, imagine a film that under any other auspices might be okay, but somehow they just managed to fumble the ball gloriously. Because <laughs> <laughs> a classic. Because uh, Every, everything in that film does not work. No. <laughs> so, okay. No, the dog works. The dog works in that film. That dog is a treasure. That dog is a I still gave it I still gave it an eight out of ten. <laughs> oh, it's a perfect film. Don't get me wrong. It's perfectly terrible that. I mean the dog doesn't work either, Zach, because the dog doesn't ever come outside. Right? So what's the point of the dog? He just the dog has, to bark the and make, the dog dog has make standards. People look he out knows the window. 
He knows what he wants out of life, Adam. He's a character that's true to his convictions. Oh, man. Don't start me on this film. Okay, so basically, the yeah. dog. No, 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 no. <laughs> we'll Next save it time. for a return, Mark. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Stay tuned for that dog in John Wick Part 5. Um, but, um, but thank you, Adam. Thank you, Smokey. Really quickly, promote your wares. Tell us all where we can find you on the interwebs. You go. Me? Oh, okay. Uh, well, our show, all, all the best lines, which Zach was a guest on last year when we did Boris Fest 2022. Um, I'm sure we're going to have to come up with something else to do another Boris Fest there, Adam, now that we think about it. Um, yeah, so all the best lines. You can find us wherever you find your podcast. Um, yeah, and on Twitter, Best Lines Pod, if you wish to get in contact with us. But then there's also my horror thing of Rated H and then the Hammer thing of House of Hammer. It's all very simple. They're everywhere. Come and find us yep. and have a listen. What's Smokey said? There you go. Yes. <laughs> uh, oh well, the, then there's also I'll do it. There's also the Out Boy Clarence. No, 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 and no. the Labors of Hercules. Oh, <laughs> you can, I, you know what? Actually, I do want to promote Attaboy Clarence, especially in the regards because it did bring us this. It bring it brought us this film, but also it mm-hmm. it's it is a wonderful haven for B movies, A movies, any kind of movies. In addition to wonderful music that is played and old time radio shows, which if, if you Thanks. gentlemen, if you will indulge me in a little bit of homage, as Tarantino would call it, and I would lovingly accept, um, if you'll indulge me in a little homage, I would like to, after this episode wraps up with us here, uh, for the audience out there, I'm going to play you an episode of The Life of Riley, followed by an episode of the Burns and Allen program where William Bendix guest stars. So you get a little bit of a double Bendix uh, goodness at the end of this episode, ladies and gentlemen. Nice. Um, and, nice. I'll, and I'll pick a fun one for uh, Life of Riley. I'm going to try to see if I can dig back and find the one that I first heard. But if I can't, then I'll, I'll find the one where Junior plays an efficiency expert um, at the Riley's plant and nearly gets his dad fired. Um, so it's a, a double edition there. of Bendix or Ben yes. Twix. Hey, you know what, guys? <laughs> this has really been all the Jeez. best Bendix. Hey, hey, you've made it, kid. You've Thank made you it. Thank you so much, really guys. Nice. This is this has been an Thank honor and delight. This has been an honor yeah, and delight for both of you to be on here. It really touches my heart. And the fact that you came in within the first hundred episodes of Ballyhoo, you made it yeah. right under the wire. Congratulations, <laughs> you two. So happy for you. Now, that's going to wrap it up for like this episode. I'd like to thank God. <laughs> You'd like to thank God? <laughs> just be like, we just won a place in the first 100. I'm just trying to do this. I'm just still thinking about how Jamie Lee Curtis won an Oscar, and it makes me so fucking happy. Um, um, but uh, that's going to wrap it up for this episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. You can find out more about us on the back half of this show. Coming up on the program, we will be returning to the world of the UK <laughs> um, in episode 101 you will be hearing Kev Moore and awesome Steve Anoble in a little jaunt down to the house on Haunted Hill Vincent Price is coming back to the Ballyhoo and in a house yes and in a house yes um, <laughs> no webs this time unless you count the webs in the corner that you can't really see um, and uh, but we're going to also be doing uh, some pre-code cinema with Ryan Frost returning for Babyface. Uh, we're going to be doing War of the Worlds uh, with Bradley Haig. And don't forget, 
episode 100 is coming, but you guys don't get to know what it is yet. It's still a secret. Um, I can tell you that if you go onto the Twitter feed, I gave you two clues. If, you, if, you, if you're eagle-eyed enough, you'll know what we're doing. It's a film that I've wanted to talk about for a long, long time, and I'm going to be having Matt Murr back, Tyler Maybe. Aaron Mullane and Chloe Riggs. It's going to be a big fucking bonanza to celebrate a hundred episodes of this shit. <laughs> so stick around for that. But until that, and in, until all of this wonderful stuff, and until next time, folks, good night. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, now that we're into the radio portion, I actually wanted to do another little slight interruption, if you wouldn't mind. So we are going to listen to an episode of The Life of Riley. Uh, this comes to you uh, from... March 24th, 1950. Now, what's interesting about this and why I wanted to interrupt is that the Radio Spirits collection that I got as a kid, turns out they got the date wrong. They listed this as February 13th, 1944, under Sissy's marriage. But thanks to the helpful um, use of OTR logs that exist, we were able to confirm that it's actually from March 24th, 1950. So there you go. It's uh, not, not Radio Spirits' fault. Maybe they just kind of got confused when printing their materials all those years ago. But now you have some clarification. So the first episode episode of The Life of Riley that I ever heard, and the one that I want to share with you guys today comes to you from March 24th, 1950, and not from 1944. And then we're going to present to you some Burns and Allen from January 18th, 1944, so that's an actual 44 episode, featuring William Bendix. Uh, and before you go um, off to listen to these radio shows, please remember to uh, join me and many other people who tune into Smokey and Adam's adventures in podcasting by listening to Rated H, All the Best Lines, Secret History of Hollywood, Attaboy Clarence, The Labors of Hercule, and The House of Hammer. Please support them. They are wonderful human beings, and their content is delightful. You're going to love it. All right, I've said enough. Let me take you on over to your radio entertainment for this evening. It's the life of Riley when it's Pabst Blue Ribbon you drink. The finest beer served anywhere, so let the glasses clink. Oh, east or west or north or south, there's nothing like it at all. Yes, you're living the life of Riley when for Pabst Blue Ribbon you call. When for Pabst Blue Ribbon you call. Pabst Blue Ribbon, finest beer served anywhere, proudly presents The Life of Riley, starring William Bendix as Riley. Chester A. Riley is more than a husband and father. He's a brother, a loving brother dedicated to finding a husband for his unmarried sister, Cecilia. Hey, Pop, what's burning? Yeah, nothing's burning, Junior. Well, I smell something. Uh, oh, oh, that's perfume. I'm spraying it around. Perfume? Yeah. With a flit gun? Yeah, stand back. Oh, what is that stuff, Pop? It's perfume. You see, what with your Aunt Sissy still being single... Well, Otto Schmidlap is calling on her tonight, and I think he's ready to pop the question. When he gets a snootful of this perfume, he'll be in the mood. It's kind of strong. Uh, yeah, it better be. It's the latest thing from Paris. Girl in the five and ten told me. <laughs> and it's expensive, too, a dollar a quart. <laughs> Stand back, Junior. I want to spray the couch. Pop, are you sure that's perfume in that flit gun? Well, of course it's perfume. Well, you're killing all the flies with it. <laughs> 
They're just swooning with love. And that's what's going to happen to Otto tonight. Uh, put the lights on, Junior. Okay. Hey, something's wrong. Only one light is burning. <laughs> sure, I unscrewed all the other bulbs. <laughs> More romantic this way. And that's not all I did. Uh, sit down on the couch, Junior, uh, on the end. Here? Yeah. Uh, go on, sit down. Uh. Hey, what's wrong? Uh, move over in the middle. Uh, see, it stops. Same thing with the other end. I fixed the springs that way. Now Sissy and Otto will have to sit in the middle, close together. Oh, that Otto won't get away tonight. <laughs> but Aunt Sissy doesn't like Otto. She likes Hugo Harari. That loafer. Oh, I bet she'd rather marry him. I like Hugo better, too. Okay, you can marry Hugo, but Sissy's going to marry Otto. <laughs> I still like Hugo. Uh, I think the perfume's wearing off. I better give that couch a second coat. Ronnie! Yeah, in here, Dumplin'. Ronnie, I wanted that. Who's burning leaves? <laughs> Nobody's burning leaves. Peg, come over here. Uh, sit down on the couch here. Oh, Riley, I got the dishes to do. No, come on, sit down. <laughs> oh, this couch. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Not there, here in the middle beside me. <laughs> well, what is it? Get a little closer to me. Oh, Riley. Come I'm... on, come on. Yeah, that's it. What are you up to, Riley? Now, tilt your chin up like someone was going to kiss you. Oh, Chester. Yeah, fine. <laughs> Hold it. Perfect. Uh, that light don't shine in your face, does it, honey? No. Uh-uh. The room's quite dark. Yeah. It's better in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well? Well, what? Oh, aren't you going to kiss me? Well, who put that nonsense into your head? <laughs> what? Why should I kiss you? I ain't coming home from work. Chester Riley! Oh, you thought that I was... <laughs> Gee, Peg, you're a regular woman. <laughs> I was just testing. Otto Schmidlatt's calling on Sissy tonight. I think he's going to pop the question. I was... Just setting the stage, setting the mood of the room. Oh, <laughs> so that's it. Now, look, you've got to let Sissy run her own life. Well, I'm just trying to help romance along. But, but she doesn't care for Otto. She told me so. She likes Hugo Harari. Frankly, I like Hugo better, too. How can you even compare a fine boy like Otto with that Hugo, a no-good gambler? Oh, just because he's silly enough to play the horses once in a while doesn't make him a gambler. Anyway, that's Sissy's business. I don't think that Otto's such a prize. What are you talking about? He comes from a wonderful family. His mother was a Fendelkraut. They've got a terrific business. Fendelkraut sauerkraut. Maybe so. But that Otto, you know, he isn't too bright in the upper story. Otto, not bright. Why, he pulls down a hundred bucks a week. Yeah, that's what the family pays him to stay away from the business. <laughs> he told me so himself. That's how bright he is. Okay, so Otto's a rich moron, but Hugo's a gambler. Who would you rather marry, a gambler or a moron? I made my choice 18 years ago. <laughs> how can you say such a thing about me? I never gambled in my life. Hello, brother hello, dear. Sissy. Oh, hello, sissy. I was just over at the hairdressers. Oh, your hair looks lovely. Yes, I had a cut in the new bob. I... Peggy, I think your pork chops are burning. 
No, dear, I, I'm not cooking pork chops. Well, I smell something. Uh, oh, that's me. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, oh, I, uh, I got some news for you, Cecilia, darling. Oh, I have news, too. Yeah. Someone's coming to see me tonight. Yeah, who told you? He phoned me this afternoon. He said he has something important to ask me. Oh, that Otto, a fast worker. <laughs> oh, not Otto. Hugo. <laughs> yeah, but, Sissy, I thought Otto is... Oh, is I wouldn't have my hair done just for Otto. Now, look, Sissy, that Hugo is no good. I want you to stay away from him. Riley, you mind your own business. This is my business. I don't want Sissy to make a mistake she'll regret the rest of her life. Hugo's a perfect gentleman. He's a no-good loafer, never works. He is not. He's looking around for a business to invest in. He's just a gambler. It's in his blood. You show me a man who gambles, and I'll show you a man who'll desert his wife, beat his kids, and steal money from his boss. But he said he's going to quit gambling. Yeah, when did he tell you that? Tuesday. Well, then he lied, because on Wednesday, I gave him $2 to bet on a horse for me. <laughs> you stay away from that Hugo, you hear? your mother? She's in the kitchen. Good. And your aunt, Sissy? In the living room. Fine. Look, Junior, I, I need your help. Otto's coming here tonight. But Aunt Sissy says she's going to see Hugo. Yeah, not if I see him first. I want you to go out on the porch and give me the high sign. If it's Otto, knock twice. If it's Hugo, knock once. I got to get rid of him. Now, go on. Go on now. Oh, I don't know, Pop. I don't like this. If Mom finds out, she'll blow her top. Well, don't you worry. I'll protect you. Yeah, but who will protect you? <laughs> Come on, Junior. Help me out. Well, okay. Good. Now remember, one knock for Hugo and two knocks for Otto. Was that the door, brother dear? Oh, uh, well, uh, no, 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 Sissy. That was just Junior. Oh, I thought it was Hugo. <laughs> Maybe Hugo won't come tonight. Oh, he'll be here, all right. He promised. Let me know as soon as he comes. I'll be in the living room. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what she sees in that Hugo. But then nobody ever knows what a woman sees in a man. They said the same thing when Peg got married. But I'm going to snip this in the butter out. It's Otto. What a break. Hello, Mr. Riley. <laughs> <laughs> you're, uh, you're late, Otto. Well, I, I couldn't help it. A guy stole my car. No kidding. Yeah, I seen him. Just when I was coming out of my house, this guy gets in my car and drives off. Oh, that's terrible. What'd you do? Oh, I fixed him good. While he was driving away, I wrote down my license number. <laughs> well, that, that was quick thinking. Yes, sir. Ain't no flies on me. I dip my clothes in DDT. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. Come on in, Otto. Hey. Hey, you sure it's okay you fixed it up with Sissy, huh? Uh, well, yeah, yeah, well, sure, it'll be okay. Now, now, remember, Otto, if you got something to ask Sissy, you better do it tonight before somebody steals her from under your nose. Yeah, maybe the same guy who stole my car, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you, you, you better work fast. Now, go on in. She's in the living room here. Hey, I smell something. Yeah, I know, burning leaves. No, perfume. <laughs> Go on in there, quick. Go ahead. Oh. Hey, Pop, how'd I do? Swell, Junior. So far, so good. Why are you getting down on your knees? Shh. I want to see how that stupid Otto's doing. What's he doing? Uh, nothing. Sitting at one end of the room and Sissy at the other. 
Oh, now he's reaching into his pocket for something. And from here, I can't tell if it's a ring or... Hmm, a comic book. <laughs> Two comic books. He's handed one to Sissy. Hey, Pop, I hear someone outside. Oh, that's Hugo. Open the door. I don't want him to ring. Hiya, Riley. What do you want, Hugo? This ain't no racetrack. Got a date with a cute filly, Sissy. No, you haven't. She left town this afternoon. Three to one, you're lying. Beat it. Sissy don't want anything to do with you. Baloney. Love is a race, and Sissy ain't scratched me yet. <laughs> Listen, Hugo, you ain't gonna marry my sister. Five, I'll get you ten, I do. If you do, it'll be over my dead body. I'll give you even money on that. <laughs> okay, wise guy, you're always handing out tips. Now, let me give you a tip. You leave my sister alone or I'll get tough with you. And you better listen, because this is one tip you're getting straight from the horse's mouth. Now, go on, get out! 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 Otto, you really have to go. Well, I just got here, sissy, and I got something to ask you. Something very, uh, if you'll excuse the expression, uh, personal. Some other night, Otto, please. What's that? Somebody at the window. Well, I wonder who could be... Sissy, open the window. It's Hugo. Hiya, Sissy. Hugo, what are you doing here? Uh, just checking. Riley told me you weren't in, and I figured you were. Oh, that brother of mine. I told him to tell me when you got here. Come on, climb in, Hugo. Yeah. <sighs> that Otto is here. Yeah, well, I'll get rid of him. Hi there, Otto, pal. Hello. Uh, say, Otto, uh, how'd you like some ice cream? Ice cream? Oh, boy, I love ice cream. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, I'll tell you what, I'll pay for it if you go out and get it. Here, here, here. Uh, get a quarter's worth of pistachio. Ooh, pistachio, that's my favorite kind. Okay, I'll go, and you'll get the three spoons ready. <laughs> yeah, yeah, here. Uh, go out the window, it's shorter. I'll give you a boost. There. Okay. Ups a daisy. <laughs> now, get going, Otto. Hey. Wait a minute. How do I know this isn't a trick to get rid of me? I bet you want to cut in on my date with Sissy. I ain't so dumb, you know. Why, Otto, I wouldn't do a thing like that. I, I promise, while you're away, I won't even look at her. That's right, and I won't look at you, go. Well, okay. But just to make sure, put out the lights. <laughs> Get away from that keyhole. I just want to see how he's doing. Last time I checked, he was reading a comic book. Hugo? No, Otto. I thought you <laughs> I got rid of that Hugo. He won't come around here anymore. <laughs> oh, have you been meddling again? Shh. I want to see if Otto's made any progress. Ah, he finally got around to turning out the lights. It's dark. Uh-huh. He's on the couch. <laughs> now she's on the couch. <laughs> It stopped. They're together at last. I think he's kissing her. What did you do to that couch? I turned it into a love seat. <laughs> well, I think everything's under control. Let's go to the movies, huh? Oh, honest, Riley, if you don't stop interfering... Hey, I know I... what I'm doing. Now, come on, let's go. We're late for the movies. Oh, hello. You going out? I got some pistachio ice cream. Oh, no, 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 thanks. <laughs> we're, we're going to the movies, but you go in the living room and ask Otto if he likes pistachio. Good night. Come on, Peg. Riley... Look, now, how... please, Peg, don't start, huh? But Riley... I know what I'm doing. But Riley... If we're going to the movies, let's enjoy ourselves. You know, Peg, that fellow went in the house looked just like Otto. He... <laughs> Wait a minute! 
Hey, Bobby, you want some pistachio? Out of my way, Otto. Put on the lights. Chester, guess what? Hugo and I, we're engaged. No. That's right. Just pop the question. The little lady said yes. Doesn't anybody want any pistachios? <laughs> what a revolting development this is. <laughs> Perhaps Blue Ribbon will bring you the second act of The Life of Riley in just a moment. And now back to The Life of Riley, starring William Bendix as Riley with Paula Winslow and John Brown. I tell you, I won't stand for it, and that's final, sissy. But I love you, though. No baby sister of mine is going to marry a gambler. Rather than let you be stuck with him the rest of your life, I'm willing to be stuck with you the rest of my life. Now, Riley, Sissy's old enough to make her own decisions. Well, sissy, you don't know what you're letting yourself in for. He'll never earn a living for you. The minute you come back from your honeymoon, you have to go out and get a job. That's no way to start married life, is it, Peg? No. And I should know that's what happened to me. <laughs> now, please, Peg, we're talking about Sissy. But Hugo promised to give up betting on horses. They always promise, but they never do it. But I told you, he's just waiting till he gets a little money together. He can buy into a cigar stand. All he needs is $200. Now, Sissy, there ain't gonna be no wedding, and that's final. I have made up my head. Chester, <laughs> <laughs> how could you? Oh, it's no use turning on the waterworks. You ain't gonna get around me that way. Uh. You're mean. That's what you uh, are. That may have worked when we were kids, but I ain't the softy oh. I used to be. Uh. <laughs> yeah, well, cut it out. Now it won't work. <laughs> I'm too strong-minded. <laughs> now you stop crying. It ain't gonna do you any good. <laughs> 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 Uh, $180, $190, $200. Yeah, it's all here, Riley. And, well, I don't like to get sentimental. I'm going to say thanks. You're welcome, Hugo. Now let go of the money. No. Now, Jeff, I ain't doing this for you, Hugo. It's for Sissy. I want to see her happy. Well, Sissy's happiness is my life's work, and that comes from the heart, Riley. Now let go of the money. No. <laughs> Not yet. There's 200 bucks here is every cent I had in the bank. It's your wedding present to invest in that cigar stand. But first, I got to be sure you're through with the horses. Riley, believe me, I, I gave up the ponies two days ago. The minute Sissy said yes, I tore up my bookie's phone number. I'm a reformed character. I, I swear it. Oh, no, that ain't enough. Swear by something you believe in. Hand me that racing form. <laughs> what? I'm, I'm tearing it up. Look, look, I'm tearing it. I, I give you my word. I, I, I place my last bet. Now I'll go the money. Uh, okay. You sound sincere, Hugo. I always can tell when a man's sincere. Okay, here's the dough. You put it in that cigar stand right away. Thanks, Riley. You're a thoroughbred. Yeah, well, count it again. Make sure it's all there. Yeah, better. 5, 10, 15, 25, 35, 40, 40. And don't try to pull any tricks on me. You won't get away with it. You got my word, Riley. 50, uh, 50, 60, 65, 60. That's, that's the phone. Well, keep counting. I'll get it. Hello? Hello, Hugo. Uh, he's busy. You got any message? Yeah. Tell him I got the information on Sister Kate. She's a mother. Oh, okay. I'll tell him. Oh, congratulations, Hugo. Your Sister Kate just had a baby. Yeah, yeah, that's swell. Uh, 70, 75, 80... Remember what I'm telling you, Hugo. You're in the cigar business now, so don't try any fast ones. I'll catch you every time. You can trust me, Riley. 80, 90, 95, 90... Keep counting. Yeah. Hello? Hugo? No, Hugo's busy. Tell 
Tell them Uncle Charlie got the heaves and they're scratching him. Okay. <laughs> it's about your Uncle Charlie. He's got the hives and he's itching like crazy. <laughs> Poor Uncle Charlie. Yeah, must have had something disagreed with him. Yeah, he eats like a horse. 100, 110, 20, 125. You know, Hugo, I, I guess I was wrong about you. Any guy that takes such an interest like you do in his family, he's okay. I guess Sister Kate and Uncle Charlie won't be able to come to the wedding Sunday, huh? Yeah. Yeah? Hello? Yeah. Tell Hugo I just got bad news about Grandpa Gus. He fell at Arlington Park and broke his leg. Oh, that's, that's tough. Yeah, they had to shoot him. Well, okay, I'll tell him. Brace yourself for a shock, Hugo. Your grandfather broke a leg and they shot him. 180, 190, 200. Shot him! Give me back that money, you swindler. Your relatives are horses. Okay, okay, I admit it. I, I, I should have known I couldn't fool you, Riley. You lied to me. Well, I was just making a few last bets to, to get a stake together so I get an honest business, but now I got your $200, I got my stake. I don't have to bet horses now. Isn't that logical? Yeah, logical. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm licked. I guess it would break Sissy's heart if the wedding was called off. I'll take one more chance on you, Hugo, but I'm warning you if I ever catch you making another bet... Riley, I'll... Riley, Riley, I swear, if I ever make another bet, may you drop dead. <laughs> I'll let go of the money. Riley? Riley? Oh, here I am, Peg. I'm Where here. were you? I was looking all over for well, you. I got a 50-pound cake of ice, and I was sawing it into cubes. Well, we're ready for the ceremony. The judge just got here. Where's Hugo? Oh, he's waiting. I locked him in our room. Locked? <laughs> Let him out, and let's get started. Oh, no, not yet. Everybody isn't here. Well, who's missing? Well, oh, here he comes. Digger Odell. That's his car. Did you have to invite him? Oh, he's one of my best friends. All right, all right. But did he have to drive up in a hearse? <laughs> Greetings, folks. It is I, Digby O'Dell, the friendly undertaker. <laughs> we, were, uh, we were waiting for you, Digger. Oh, I'm so sorry I'm late. I had to drop someone first. <laughs> Oh, that's all right, Mr. O'Dell. Oh, here you are, Mrs. Riley. I took the liberty of bringing some flowers for the bride. My favorite kind, crocus. Thank you. Well, I'll go tell the judge we're ready to start. Now, Riley, you go find Hugo. Hurry up Okay, now. okay, we'll be ready. <laughs> Women get so excited at weddings, don't they, Digger? Oh, everybody does. I remember my wedding day. After the ceremony when I was supposed to carry my bride across the threshold of our cottage... I was so excited, I asked five of my colleagues to help me. Well, come on, Digger. I, I better go get Hugo. He's in here. Hugo, come on, it's time. You Yeah, 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 in a minute, pal. Hey, stop fiddling with that radio and come on, Hugo. Riley, shh. They're backing Wheatfield into the starting gate now. They should break any second. A horse race. Hugo, you didn't. You you couldn't. Well, it was a sure thing, Riley. Hugo, not the whole 200. Tell me you didn't bet the whole 200. Yeah, but it was a perfect hunch, Riley. Here it's my wedding, and here's this filly in the second at Hialeah called I Do. Now, how can she lose? You took every cent I had in the world and gambled it. 
How could you do this to me and to Sissy? I'm intruding. I'd better leave. You go. If that horse loses, you'll never leave this room alive. In that case, I'll stay. <laughs> I, I tell you, Riley, I do as a short... And they're off. At the start, it's high resolve breaking on top, followed by War and I. Wheatfield, Chutney, cover up, and I do is trailing. He's last. At the quarter, it's still high resolve by a length, Chutney by a half, Wheatfield on the rail by a head, War and I by three, cover up, and I do. Oh, he's still trailing, Hugo. You got one foot in the grave. Riley, this is no time to talk shop. <laughs> At the far turn, high resolve by a head, Chutney by a length, War and I by a neck, cover up, closing on the inside. Wheatfield and I do. Oh, Digger, he's going to lose all my money. I would have bet on cover up. <laughs> I do ain't got a chance. I don't give up. He'll win yet. In the stretch, cover up, leading by half a length. High resolve by a head. Wheatfield is now third. Shut me by a head. War and I are stiff. And here comes I do. Come on, I do. Come on. Come on. Straight away, it's covered up by one. High resolve by a neck. Wheatfield by a head. And I do. Coming fast. Approaching the finish line, it's cover up and I do, head and head. It's I do and cover up, I do and cover up, and the winner by a nose, cover up! He lost. I do lost. Two hundred dollars. I'll murder you! Riley, Riley, don't! Get up, you phony, and take your punishment like a man. I think he's out, Riley. Correction, racing fans, at the photo finish. The judges are studying the photo. It may be a dead heat. A dead heat. Oh, dandy. <laughs> From here, it looked like cover-up, but we'll soon have the official. Here it is. And the winner, paying six to one, I do. I do. We won. We won. Twelve hundred dollars. Hugo. Hugo, wake up. Hugo, we won. Twelve hundred dollars. Hugo. Hugo, talk to me. It's me, Riley, your partner. Oh, they're starting the wedding. Pop, hurry up. Hugo, Digger, what'll I do? He's out cold. Try and wake him up. I'll try, but if I do, it'll be the first time. (laughs) Come on now, Hugo, wake up. Slap him, Digger, slap him. Oh, it's no use. You'd best call off the wedding. No, sissy will never get over it. But the man is unconscious. All right, we'll carry him in. You hold him by one arm and I'll hold him by the other arm. Come on. Very well. But this is the first time I've ever carried anybody in to a wedding. (laughs) And do you, Cecilia, take this man to be your lawful wedded husband? I do. And do you, Hugo, take this woman to be your lawful wedded wife? Hugo, wake up, please. (laughs) Do you, Hugo, take this woman to be your lawful wedded wife? Hugo... You go snap out of it. Do you, Hugo, take this woman to be your lawful wedded wife? Hugo, what looks good in a second at Santa Anita? I do. <laughs> I now pronounce you man and wife. In just a moment, Riley will return. Tonight, before you go to bed, make an inspection tour of your icebox. How's that Pabst Blue Ribbon Supply holding out? Got enough bottles and cans? Remember, tomorrow's the beginning of a relaxing weekend. You'll be entertaining guests or listening to the radio or just getting that hungry, thirsty feeling when you want a snack of cheese and crackers topped off with a tall, cool foamer of Pabst Blue Ribbon beer. Tomorrow morning when your dealer says, what did you have? Say, Pabst Blue Ribbon. What else? It's the 
most fantastic thing I ever heard well, of. Peg, they're married and they're on their honeymoon. Now, let's forget it. Well, I, I don't even know if it was legal. It's legal. It's legal. But Hugo was unconscious. So what? Let's face it, Dumplin'. If you gotta get married, that's the best way to do it. <laughs> Hey, Riley, I'm delighted to hear that Sissy got married. Well, thanks, Mr. Wallington. You know, I'd like to send her a little wedding gift, a case of Pabst Blue Ribbon. A wedding gift? Pabst Blue Ribbon? Why, certainly, Riley. Pabst Blue Ribbon is the perfect gift for the bride, any way you look at it. Pabst Blue Ribbon has a wonderful bouquet. Pabst Blue Ribbon sparkles like a diamond necklace. Pabst Blue Ribbon has a collar as pure white, as delicate, and fine as old lace. Hey, you sure can make with the words, Mr. Wallington. And speaking of good taste, Riley... What could be finer than the finest beer served anywhere? Your taste will tell you why. Oh, it's the life of Riley when it's Pabst Blue Ribbon you drink. The finest beer served anywhere, so let the glasses clink. Oh, east or west or north or south, there's nothing like it at all. Yes, you're living the life of Riley when for Pabst Blue Ribbon you call. When for Pabst Blue Ribbon you call. Pabst Blue Ribbon invites you to join us again next week to hear The Life of Riley, starring William Bendix as Riley. The Life of Riley is produced by Irving Brecker by arrangement with Universal International Pictures, now releasing Buccaneers Girls, starring Yvonne DiCarlo and Philip Friend. Consult your local paper for the correct time of The Life of Riley show on television over NBC each week. The Life of Riley is brought to you by the Pabst Brewing Company of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Newark, New Jersey, and Peoria, Illinois, and sent your way with the best wishes of Pabst Blue Ribbon dealers from coast to coast. Jimmy Wallington speaking. Goodwin speaking for Lever Brothers, makers of Swan, the new white floating soap that's pure as fine Castiles. Well, it's Tuesday night again, time for another pleasant visit with George Burns and Gracie Allen, our guest William Bendix, a special visitor, Herbert Marshall, Jimmy Cash, the Swan Tet, and Felix Mills and his orchestra. And now meet the people who live in the Burns house, George and Gracie. Well, breakfast is just over at the Burns house, and George is about to leave for the office. Oh, George, I don't think you ought to go to the office today. You don't look well. Oh, I'm all right. A little tired. I, I worked late last night. No, darling, it's more than that. You weak. Why, at breakfast, you had to hit your boiled egg four times to crack it. <laughs> I did, huh? Yeah. And when you're feeling your usual robust self, you only have to hit it three times. <laughs> Yeah, before I was married, I could crack them with my bare hands. Well, I better get started for the office. No, dear. What you need is rest and nourishment. Now, you lie down while I go get a chicken and milk it for you. You're gonna milk the chicken? I, I would cream it, but all I have is milk. Say, cream chicken... <clears throat> Sounds great, but I'd rather get to the office. No, there. darling. You're going to rest right here in this den. Shall I bring down the flower pajamas I gave you for Christmas? Oh, don't bother. They don't look good on me. Oh, I think they're very becoming. Why, across the hips, the flowers look like they're just ready to burst into bloom. 
Ah, never mind. Oh, dear company. I'll close the door so nothing will disturb you. Greetings, dear lady. Oh, good morning, Mr. Bolingbroke. Well, how is your School of Culture and Dramatic Art coming along? Alas, it no longer exists. My landlady cast me forth from my lodgings. Ah, too bad. Yes, and one cannot teach culture on a park bench. Policemen and pigeons spoil the mood. (laughs) Wait, I have an idea. Why couldn't you use my house for your culture school? Who knows, it might become as famous as the Louvre, the Acropolis, the Palladium. That's a splendid idea. Ah, but there is an insect in the ointment of culture. Your husband. For some obscure reason, he considers me a bum. Oh, well, don't worry. We'll only hold classes while George is at the office. Now, you get whatever you need for the culture school, and I'll get rid of my husband. Good luck to you, Mrs. Burns, and good riddance to your husband. (laughs) Why, George, haven't you gone to work yet? Huh? Let me see your tongue. Ah. Well, it looks fine, not a bit bloodshot. (laughs) But, Gracie, a minute ago you said... Uh, Put on your coat while I answer the door. Yes? Excuse me, lady, but is this where the Gilhoolies live? No. No, I'm sorry, you have the wrong address. (laughs) Okay, thanks. Who was that? I don't know, but he looked kind of familiar. Well, goodbye, George. Hurry to the office. Do you really think I ought to go? I feel kind of dizzy. Maybe I've got something. Mm, My father never missed a day's work in his life. He had lots of things to make him dizzy. I know. I married one of them. (laughs) Hiya, folks. Oh, hello, Bill. You leaving, George? I guess so. Bill, do you think I look my usual self this morning? Well, no, George, you don't. See, Gracie? You look good. (laughs) Goodbye, funny man. Oh, Bill, now that George is gone, I can tell you the wonderful news. I I didn't want George to find out about it, so you're the first one I'm telling. Why, Gracie, you're going to have a baby. I am? (laughs) Oh, Bill, that's better news than I have for you. What do you think it'll be? Well, wait a minute, Gracie. Isn't that what you were going to tell me? Oh, no. Oh. Well, uh, what is the news, Gracie? Well, Nigel Bolingbroke and I are opening a school of drama and culture. Oh, really? Well, say, maybe I could teach diction. Oh, are you good at that? Well, Grace, I don't want to brag, but just yesterday, one of the biggest radio announcers in this town came to me to help him with his voice. Really? Oh, yeah. He said, um, Bill, old friend, my sponsor is unhappy. Show me how you say swine. The new white floating soap is for soaps in one. The soap for your hands and face for bathing the baby. And the soap for your dishes and light laundry. Show me that, Bill. Oh, the poor man. Did you help him? Well, when I got through with him, he was talking like this. Swan is a great wartime buy. When you wash the dishes with a swan, you get heaps of suds. Suds so gentle, so mild, uh, you don't have to worry about rough uh, red dish panny hands. So he talked like that on his program and the sponsor was happy, huh? No, the sponsor fired him. He was supposed to sell coffee. (laughs) Well, 
Now, now, Bill, I'm afraid you won't do as a teacher. Well, okay, Gracie. Oh, by the way, before I go, do you know the Gilhoolies in this neighborhood? Well, now, that's funny. There was another man here asking for them. Well, that must have been William Bendix. He's trying to locate these friends of his from Brooklyn. William Bendix, the, the movie star? Yeah. Oh, my goodness, and I practically slammed the door in his face. Oh, the poor man. From the looks of his face, it's had lots of doors slammed on it. <laughs> well, you know, Gracie, Bendix is really a swell guy. I worked with him in the picture, Wake Island. You remember that big, dumb Marine? Yeah, I, I thought you were very good. <laughs> No, he, he was the big, dumb Marine. Oh, oh, yes. Say, Bill, wouldn't William Bendix be a wonderful guinea pig for our culture school? Well, what do you mean? Well, if we could make a suave, sophisticated, leading man out of him, we'd be famous. You'd be magicians. He doesn't go for that culture stuff, Gracie. Well, uh, maybe I can get him interested. Oh, excuse me, Bill. Look, uh, lady, are you sure you don't know where the Gilhoolies live? I'm just dying to talk to somebody from Brooklyn. Welcome right in, Mr. Bendix. You mean you're from Brooklyn? Well, they call me Green Perch Gracie. Well, hallelujah! Our young tenor, Jimmy Cash, with a brand new popular ballad, So Good Night. James? Good night, nothing more left to say when day is through. My dreams will all be of you. ideal pupil for her school of drama and culture. So she has lured him into the house by pretending to be from Brooklyn. Gee, lady, it sure is great to meet somebody from Brooklyn. Oh, yes, the motherland. Yeah. Ah, oh, such a lovely place with its trees and its flowers and its little flat bushes. Yeah, you said a kisserful, lady. What memories? Eating weenies and kraut from a pushcart. 
while the new moon caresses the Navy Yard. You make it sound like poetry, Mr. Bendix. Oh, I don't take no credit. Brooklyn brings out the poet in anybody that's human. And you are, aren't you? Yes. Well, enough about Brooklyn. Let's talk about you, Mr. Bendix. Okay, that's an interesting subject. Um, how does it feel to be such a flop in pictures? Hmm? Oh, I ain't doing so bad. Well, the folks back home are disappointed in your playing a cab driver. They, they'd rather see you as Romeo or Madame Curie. Oh, I couldn't play them. They was foreigners. Ah, just the same. The home folks feel that you've let them down. And they don't feel that way about Ronald Coleman. Gee, is he from Brooklyn? One of the oldest families. Well, that's funny. I never run into him in none of the saloons. And Brooklyn is mighty proud of Walter Pigeon. Him too? Sure. You don't say. You see, Mr. Coleman and Mr. Pigeon are successful because they're cultured Brooklyn gentlemen. Yeah. They make out pretty good with the dames, too, huh? Oh. Oh, are you interested in women? Oh, yeah. They could very easily become a hobby with me. <laughs> well, uh, why do you suppose Charles Boyer always gets the girls? Politics. No, because he's a cultured Brooklyn gentleman. I thought he was French. That's right, from the French Quarter of Brooklyn. <laughs> the left bank. The left bank? Yeah. You know, the other side of the Canarsie swamps. Oh, yeah. A lovely spot. Mm. You could get the girls, too, if you'd brush up on culture. Now, uh, for instance, I'll bet you blow on your soup. Well, sure, but strictly proper, I never blow on it toward me. Ronald Coleman doesn't blow on his soup at all Fans it with his bread, huh? Mr. Bendix, you do need culture Wouldn't you like to become a gentleman? Lady, I'm a gentleman to the tip of my toes Well, maybe, but from there up you need plenty of work I do, huh? Yeah Now, for example, what would you do at a party if a young lady held out her hand to you? I guess I'd bite it No Ronald Coleman would kiss it. Well, he ain't as lonesome as I've been. Now, now you, you better enroll in culture school right away. Okay, I'll give it a try. Where is this seat of higher learning? You're sitting on it. This is the school? Yep. We have a course that's guaranteed to make the average man a gentleman in a week. Well, do you think you can make me a gentleman in a week? Well, it might take a little longer, but don't worry. The months will fly by. Well... Tis I, dear lady. Oh, come in, Dean Bolingbroke. I want you to meet our student, William Bendix. Well, well. Our first sucker, uh, seeker after knowledge. Uh, hiya, Dean. Do you think you can make me a Ronald Coleman? Hey, boy, we shall plant in you the flower of culture. It's up to you to make it bloom. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure it'll bloom beautifully in Mr. Bendix. He's a perfect pot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And now, my dear scholar, uh, uh, shall we discuss that little matter of uh, the uh, uh, enrollment fee, shall we? <laughs> oh, uh, you mean dough? Yes, yes, uh, dough, as you so delightfully put it. Uh, naturally, you want to enroll for all our courses. Oh, sure, I'll take everything you got. It's mutual. <laughs> 
Now, uh, just count your money slowly into my palm. Okay. Ten. For elocution. Twenty. For rhetoric. Twenty-five. For poise. Thirty. For elocution. <laughs> you said that. Uh, uh, that was compound elocution. This is complex. Oh, well. I guess that's the bundle. Wait, wait a minute. Hold on. Here's a book I didn't see. You may keep that for your honesty. Oh, gee. <laughs> Thanks, Dean. Not at all. You show great promise, dear pupil. I predict that you will make the Hall of Fame. And I didn't make a bad haul myself. Uh, farewell, friends. Oh, no, wait, Mr. Bolingbroke. How about Mr. Bendix's culture lesson? Well, there isn't time today. If your husband comes home and catches us running this culture school, he'll skin us alive. Oh, dear, that's right. And we haven't got the skin to spare like he has. <laughs> How true. Oh, Mr. Bendix, you better come back tomorrow. Goodbye. Well, gee whiz, I paid my dough. I want a lesson. Uh, Mrs. Burns, I suggest we step into the next room and hold a faculty meeting. Excuse us, Mr. Bendix. Gee, if the folks back in Flatbush could only see me now. Me in a culture school. Hello. Hello. Is aren't you William Bendix? Yeah, why? Well, nothing. I'm a little surprised to see you here. Well, you look a little out of place yourself. <laughs> out of place? I live here. Gee, she ain't made you much like Ronald Coleman. <laughs> she? Yeah, the little dame, your daughter. <laughs> she happens to be my wife. Oh, well, well, I'm your new student. Student? Look, where is my wife? Well, excuse me. Why, George, you're not supposed to be home this early. I mean, uh, hello, dear. Bolingbroke, what are you doing here? Leaving. Goodbye. <laughs> Gracie, what's William Bendix doing in the living room? He says he's a student here. Is, is that all, all he told you? Yes. If he's a student, who's his teacher? Uh, you. Me? What do I teach him? Singing. Oh, stop. Oh, it's true, darling. You've been the talk of Hollywood since you sang at that party the other night. Well, I... I did kind of make a hit, didn't I? Oh, yes, dear. When you sang the desert song, you were so believable. All the sand and gravel of the desert seemed to be right in your throat. <laughs> My desert is calling... Oh, come back to me. Oh, oh, my chic. So that's why Bendix is here. He wants me to teach him to sing. Sure. You know, Gracie, when I walked in here, I half expected you to make up some kind of a lie. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, you're cute. <laughs> Time for Felix Mills and his orchestra. And tonight with the Swantet, an old favorite that's back in favor now. My Ideal. Thank you. 
and yet she might be just around the corner waiting for me. Will I recognize the light in her eyes that no other eyes reveal? Or will I pass her by and never even know that she is my and Bendix apart so that George won't find out his home has been turned into a culture school. Well, I'm going in to show Bendix how I sing. Oh, no, you, you can't, dear. You see, when you sang the desert song just now, you didn't sound right. The, the gold was missing from your voice. No gold at all? Well, it was tarnished. <laughs> Some of the notes you sang were sort of green. Gee, I, I thought I sounded swell. My desert is calling. No, no, oh, I'm sorry, well, maybe, dear. No, no. <laughs> but uh, I'm very sensitive to the quality of your voice. When its bell-like tones are perfect, my whole body quivers. And it didn't quiver then? No, only my left leg twitched a little. <laughs> you mean, you mean I'm slipping? No, I'm sure it's nothing permanent. Uh, just this morning, you were superb when you sang in the shower. Oh, I love the way you kept tuned to the rhythm of the drum beats. What drum beats? The water bouncing off your stomach. <laughs> oh, that. Showers seem to help your voice. Why don't you go up and take another shower now? A nice long one. But, sweetheart... Oh, please, George. Wash yourself back into shape and then show Mr. Bendix how you sing. Well, okay. I want him to hear me at my best. Uh, just tell him I won't be long. All right, dear. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry I left you so long, Mr. Bendix, but... My husband is home now, and I'll have to give you your culture lesson tomorrow. Goodbye. But, gee, lady, I want to go out stepping tonight. Couldn't you just slip me enough culture to get anyhow an ugly dame? Well, uh, maybe a short lesson, just long enough for a shower. What's that? Oh, nothing, nothing. Now, we'll pretend that we're Hollywood's two most charming and sophisticated personalities. Uh, you'll be Ronald Coleman, and I'll just be myself. Okay. Now, you're serving me tea, and you just say whatever you think Mr. Coleman would say. All right. Uh, 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 a saucer of tea, Madam Ship? Mm, cheerio. Lemon? Quite. Trumpet? No, just squeeze it. Uh, spoon? Oh, let's have our tea first. Pip, pip. 
been hunting today, Ronald? Constantly. And how was the hunt? It stunk. You, um, you didn't catch a fox? No, they wasn't biting. How dreadful. Beastly. Well, how am I doing? Oh, you were wonderful. If it wasn't for a few things like your face, I'd have sworn you were Ronald Coleman. Hiya, Gracie. Uh, hello, Bill. Bendix, are you still here? Mr. Goodwin, you are now looking at the Bendix that all the women want. Well, you are built a little like a washing machine. <laughs> One more dirty crack and I'll kick your teeth in. Oh, Mr. Bendix, hmm? remember your culture. You should say, One more uncouth remark and I'll kick your teeth in. Oh, uh, yeah. You see, Goodwin, this little lady has molded me into a Ronald Coleman. Really? It doesn't show. Oh, Bill, I think he definitely looks molded. Hey, <laughs> see, will you bring me a towel? Oh, George is out of the shower. You boys better leave. Uh, Mr. Bendix, I'll see you tomorrow. Goodbye. Bye. Well, Goodwin, now that I'm cultured, I ought to get plenty of things. Now, now, look, Bendix, if you want to get somewhere with the women, listen to me. Now, let's say that you have a beautiful woman in your home. Well, that's already further than I ever got before. <laughs> Well, now, now, first you want to show her that nothing's too good for her, oh. you see. So you open the bar and you tell her to help herself. Yeah, go on. Yeah, her eyes will light up and she'll say, Oh, Mr. Bendix, for me, that whole bar of swan? Bar of what? A swan. That's the new white floating soap. Women are crazy about swan because it's four soaps in one. Great for their hands and face or for bathing the baby and tops for dishes and light laundry. Swan is four swell soaps in one, a great wartime buy. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean to tell me I can get beautiful dames with swan soap? Well, sure. Holy smoke, and I've been wasting that stuff taking a bath with it. <laughs> well, no, Bill, that's not wasting it. A swan bath's wonderful. Even babies love those mild as may swan suds. Swan's pure as fine castiles. Say, if Swan is that mild, that pure, you couldn't ask for a better soap for your complexion. Well, yeah, 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 but, but, but what about this beautiful dame I got in my home? Yeah. She's standing there clutching a bar of soap. Now, now, what, uh... What now? Well, yeah. now you, you take her in your arms, Bill, and you squeeze her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One little squeeze, does it? Uh... The bar of Swan breaks in two. Huh? And you put... Half in the bathroom for your hands and face tub or shower And half in the kitchen for your dishes and light laundry Then you send the dame home Send her home? Oh, my goodness, haven't you boys gone yet? Well, we were just... Well, it's, uh... it's too late now My husband's on his way down to give you a singing lesson Singing lesson? But Ronald Coleman doesn't sing But think how many more women you'll attract If you talk like Coleman and sing like Sinatra Gee Oh, well, you can be a new and different Sinatra the microphone can lean on you. Gracie, George is giving singing lessons? Oh, yes. Why, if it weren't for him, Frank Sinatra wouldn't be where he is today. George? Sure, he found an apartment for him. Well, Bendix, uh, I'm ready for your singing lesson. Now sit down and I'll show you how you'll sound after five or six years of hard study. I ain't got nobody. Nobody cares for me. Including me. Goodbye, George. 
I'm so sad and lonely, baby. Won't somebody take a chance with me? But do do do. Oh, you see, see how he closes his eyes, Mr. Bendix. Yeah, he's closing the wrong thing. I'll sing sweet love songs all the time. If you'll be my baby, baby, then you'll be mine. I ain't got nobody, babe, and nobody, nobody, nobody cares for me. When you learn to sing like that, you'll get plenty of women. Lady, the dames I could get with a voice like that, I wouldn't want. So long. George and Gracie will be right back, so I have only a few seconds to remind you that whether you're a pinup girl or a grandmother, your complexion deserves the purest, mildest soap that money can buy. You want a soap that's pure as fine Castile's. You want Swan. You want a soap that's so mild it's kind to even a baby's tender skin. Again, you want Swan. Yes, and you want a soap that'll give you a thick, rich lather at the touch of a hand. So, sister, you really want Swan. And when you get Swan, remember, it's also great for the baby and perfect for dishes and light laundry. So put your wartime pennies on a four-time winner, the new white-floating soap, Swan. Now, here again are George and Gracie. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have with us tonight a very dear friend of ours, you all know and admire, who has an important message for us all. May I present Herbert Marshall. In the past five years in this country, 50,000 persons have been stricken by infantile paralysis. Thousands of these victims, most are little children, are still crippled. They need care, which you can help to give them by joining the fight against infantile paralysis. The National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis needs your dimes and dollars now to care for those already crippled and to check future epidemics. Send your dimes and dollars to President Roosevelt at the White House. Address your contributions to the White House, Washington, D.C. Join the March of Dimes and do it today. Oh, thank you, Mr. Marshall. Good night, folks. Our guest tonight, William Bendix, is now heard in his own radio program, The Life of Riley. His next motion picture will be The Harry Eight. The makers of Swan, the new white floating soap, join George and Gracie in inviting you to tune into your Columbia station again next Tuesday, same time, when we will have as our guest, Paul Henry. The following week, William Powell. Remember George Burns and Gracie Allen, CBS, next Tuesday night. And now, till next Tuesday, this is Bill Goodwin saying, Well, I swan, how about you? Good night, everyone. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. KNX, Columbia Square, Los Angeles. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check out more of his music on Twitch. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Look for him on the Real Nerds Podcast. This is Zach signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. Yeah.